Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Oh. 
pitch a hitter a certain way but when you're in trouble and a little tired as Darlin is he might make a mistake here's the pitch he did
your neighborhood True Value Hardware Stores. Toyota's exciting cars and trucks for 1984. Toyota invites you to see them at your local dealer. Union 76 and your neighborhood Union 76 dealers who invite you to go with the spirit, the spirit of 76. Canon, the official 35mm camera of the 1984 Olympics. United Airlines, you're not just flying, you're flying the friendly skies. Zenith, see all the close-up action on the smart set by Zenith. At Zenith, the quality goes in before the name goes on. The Yellow Pages, it's the small investment that keeps your big investment paying off. And your Chicagoland McDonald's restaurant, where you can get all your favorite tastes in just one place. McDonald's. This copyrighted telecast is presented by authority of the Chicago National League Club, which has the right of approval of the announcers, and is intended solely for the private, non-commercial use of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, retransmission, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this game without the express written consent of the Chicago National League Ball Club is prohibited. Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. We have gone from the ridiculous to the sublime in our... How many, 29 teams, 30 seasons, how many seasons? I don't even know. If you do about 1980, and twenty, I think it's 29 seasons. Right. It's just some odd number. We have reached the end, but the end is not the 2011 Cubs because, oh, that was bad enough. No, the end of this is the the uh, the season that shaped your co- these two coasts as Cub fans forever. It's probably their fault. The 1984 Chicago Cubs. With me, as always, is Mike Donahue. Mike, how are you? Uh, swell, Andy. I feel like I'm coming out of a hibernation here. I looked, we haven't done a remember this crap since the Bears played the Eagles. Mm. Uh, big game. game I was we had, uh, Don Henley had a big game. Joe Walsh. Glenn Fry was dead. No, not that Eagles. The Philadelphia right, Eagles. Right. That's right. The Joe Walsh uh, uh, coming out in the stadium it was a real great surprise. Nobody saw that one coming. <laughs> Don Felder, still not welcome. Was not allowed to come back. Uh, and by the way, we undersold uh, the um, the breadth of this project. It's 32 years. I was going to say, it'd be, the, wouldn't it be 32 years? 30 I was just worried I had the years wrong. We've done every no, no, no. season from 1980 to, 19, to 2011, except for 1984. Yep. Uh, as you yep. As Those of you who uh, listen to them all, and I'm sure I can, I'll put a box set together and we can sell that. <laughs> sell that on marquee. That'll be good. We get a telephone. Cool. Um, the uh, we sp- we spun a wheel for much of this, and when it landed on, we just had to do whatever the game was that we because this remember this crap. It's not research this crap. Contemporaneous. Um, the whole idea is what can we remember about these seasons? Um, we finally fessed up towards the end that long ago we had pulled 1984 off of the wheel. Not long ago, I, I would say. Well, we, but we I mean, it's been a, four yeah. months since we did a podcast, so it was like. True. Eight months ago, right. probably we, we fessed it, up, we, but we actually we didn't it pull it, it right away. It was no. there; it could have come up. But we I, I mean, needed the a way, grand finale. 
the way it went out is that we went through because there aren't look when you have 32 seasons and what did we figure out like like nine of them are only winning seasons. Uh, we had gone through we had done every we had done every playoff season and every winning season I want to say, and there are like like eight seasons to go and one of them was 84 and then we decided let's just like yeah let's just pull this aside and uh, save it for later. It made sense. It was kind of a self. It was pretty obvious at that point, but it did avoid. It did avoid the wheel. If, if it had fallen on 1984, the, the fourth week we did it, we would have done this way back, what, two years ago? When, yeah. Fourth week was, yeah, it, so. could, it could have been our first one. But it I think this was our, our destiny. But we did not manipulate the wheel at all until it got down about the last 10. So, yeah. so 1984, I was 11 during this baseball season. You were 12, probably, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're like, what, 13 months apart? I was... Um, See, I was coming off of an all-star Little League season, I think, when I was 10. I think it was my first year as an all-star. <laughs> and I think this was the year that I basically wore my baseball jersey all the time. Like I, I was sometimes... I had I, it I would on. Mom would have to rip it off me to wash it once in a while. I was always, at least from the waist up, I was always in uniform, ready to go. If a game broke out... I, I would sometimes try, it would be hard... But to sleep through the night with a ball cap on, and then like my brother's friend would warn me that I'm going to be bald if I wear my hat all the time. So same. Well, it worked. <laughs> Damn it! He was right. I'm still wearing a hat. <laughs> uh, other thing that happened that year was the um, the Rockford Public Library, which I forget why we could go there, as I'm sure we didn't pay because we didn't live in Rockford, but I must had some reciprocal agreement. They had a thing where, for like every five books that you read as a kid, every five you got a you got a voucher for a ticket to a Cub game. And I plowed through lots of books that year, many of which I actually read. And they would bust you down and everything, right? No, this was just a ticket. So okay. I, I had to read enough to get two, so that Dad could get so that dad, I could have a chaperone yeah, right, right. to bring me in from Durand. Two hours not away. Taking, not taking a Vandergelder 11-year-old <laughs> Andy Dolan. Yeah. Ooh, and they couldn't Uber to it. That wasn't a thing in 1984. Um, Dan and I tried to figure it out one time. We think we went to seven games for free that year. In 84. And I do know that we never saw him lose. The Cubs wow. won every game we went to, whether it was five or seven, however many we went to. Because I, it's funny, the inflation on these things. Oh, I think we went to seven games. You look at back. Oh, we actually went to two. No, I, we went to we went to multiples, and we know they won them all because Dad was like worried the last couple. We haven't they haven't lost since we've been there. Like either we're good luck or we're about to doom them. Right, and you can't afford them to lose when they're actually in a pennant race, so right. you don't want to bear that burden. Um, I don't remember when. I would say August was probably the last we went. I think okay. it, it kind of ended, and then the Cubs I were can't... like, "Hey, we're actually selling tickets this year, so stop it." Right. <laughs> They sold, Sorry, did I? We say five books. We meant fifty. They sold two point one million tickets in nineteen eighty four. They set a record. Yes, they did. First time they went over two million. Six hundred thousand more than the year before. So coming off the eighty three season, they're like they're like giving any library that'll yeah. give out tickets. How many do you want? Hey, what time you can take, you get there? You know, taking that advantage of, of that all the way up until like the actual push to the. That's great. That's that's hilarious. Um, you know, I I, I can recall clearly and I'll, I'm going to touch upon them today at least five games that I went to which even for me I lived closer to Chicago it wasn't as much of a hassle but still you know it would like any which way tickets would fall into your lap you'd say yes I'll demonstrate later I have a couple of stories 
Um, and so I feel like I actually went to more games myself in that year than I probably did the year before in the year. It just kind of like was one of those things. Uh, I can't say I went undefeated either, but, um, yeah, I was, uh, what a time to be alive, you know, and being that age where like, like, you know, you're talking about wearing a uniform. I'm, I'm not taking my hat off. Uh, baseball is, you know, you're at that age, that window, right? Like you speaking for myself, I was a year older than you, but we're pretty much the same age. You know, things like girls, uh, like party, like you're not, you're, you're in that period there where it's just still the really, at least for me, uh, the only thing that mattered to the point where, you know, again, we've, we've, all of this is on the record. 1980 was our first year that we've done this. And that's because I know for myself, that's the first year that I can pretty much clearly remember. I remember like watching opening day. I remember, and I was like hooked on this team that lost 98 fucking games and their first year manager didn't even make it to September. And then that was followed up by a strike shortened season. That was even worse, believe it yeah. or not. But, and that was my first uh, year. And that was, I like, loved, exactly. Loved, I love work stoppages as a result of that season. Are they going to play it, the season in halves again this year? The, no, the reset button. Yeah, give, give us false hope. Right, and the point is there, right? You're going to be optimistic. Like, we got in on, on like the ground floor. It was worse than that. It was the end of that Wrigley era. It was like a complete bottom-of-the-barrel franchise when you and I both got on board. And so 82-83, also sub-500, but there was some – genuine uh, sort of a turning of the ship around. You could feel it. Our parents were getting excited, and it's all the Dallas Green stuff that we've rehashed. And there and there was some genuine excitement in 82, and they come out in the blue pajama tops, and they get to play the Reds and be the first team to play in Bump Wills. Homer's on the second pitch, and Bump Wills is one of those American League guys that back then only existed on top trading cards, and now he's like homering in the first pitch, and we got all these veterans, and the Cubs are a, 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 a big player and free agency, and you know, Ferguson Jenkins is here and, you know, they, they, they kind of regressed in that second year in 83 and, and it kind of cost Elias job, but they were still middling, but there was a little bit of cause for optimism, but then still going in 84, they win nine games in spring training. And even Jim Fry would say, I, you know, I'm not really sure what was going on. And, uh, but that, did that stop? I, <laughs> that stop the, a tw- unfortunately he said the same right, thing right, in San right, Diego. Right. Six months later, but uh, did, did any of that deter a twelve-year-old Huey from not only staying home from school in sixth grade on opening day, but also using our family's newfangled VHS uh, to, you know, like record the game and block out commercials as I'm watching it? And of course, I stayed home from school in that '82 game uh, when they beat the Reds. '83, uh, we were on spring break, so yeah, I'm already hooked, right? So it doesn't matter what they do; they can already drag me around by the balls because they have. Uh, and so you don't really expect anything. So yeah, staying home, Huey Lewis and the news are singing the, the, the star spangled banner. I got this somewhere in a box. I swear. Uh, again, they opened in San Francisco. Stoney tells us that they hadn't uh, opened up the season on the West coast in 66 and they still haven't. And, uh, and we're off. Right. And the Cubs actually, they win the opener. They win the, the second game. They beat ex cub, Mike Kruko, Chuck Rainey still in the rotation. This is not the same team that, that you are going to, you know, really get into, but, it was kind of a nice first start that they went on the West Coast, which is always scary and had been scary in we previous years because the Cubs were bad and the Dodgers were good and uh, West Coast trips were tough. They had to start the season, and they came home under 500 for the only time all season. They were three and four. They kind of hung in there. Um, they got swept by the Dodgers too. And the other thing I, I guess I should mention is, yeah, nine victories in spring training, but – the thing, and I've been sort of rehashing it lately when I, I mean, we knew we were going to do this, and I was kind of like going down some rabbit holes. Is 
the midnight trade that brought in the goddamn leadoff hitter, center fielder, and then almost like the the, the MVP himself, aside from Sandberg and left field, uh, two huge positions that uh, really did make the difference when they got Dernier and Matthews and poor Fiel to Marino for a washed up Bill Campbell and somebody else. It was I don't know why how Dallas Green, who had been trading with his former Philadelphia franchise for years, was able to fleece them that badly. But uh, it, it moved things around. It made things interesting when the season started. It put longtime uh, favorite Bill Buckner on the bench. It forced Keith Moreland into a platoon with Mel Hall. But as we'll see, it all sort of sorted itself out. So who was the opening day starter for the Cubs in 1984? Dick Ruthven. Used Dick to be one of my passwords. The ace, Dick Ruthven. <laughs> And here's this is if this doesn't scream 1980s baseball, the attendance for the uh, opening day in Get Candlestick was 52,700. The attendance for Game Two was 8,460. <laughs> and it was a night game. So fans, if at home, if you're wondering why there's always an off day after opening day, that's the reason right there. They want an extra date to, so they can cram all the ticket That's holders a lot into of it so they do not have to give vouchers for future games for the one sellout they might get all year. I can still tell you without looking it up that future Cy Young Award winner for the Padres, Mark Davis, we brought his name up several times, incidentally, and remember this crap, uh, was the starter for the Giants, and uh, he, he was felled by some late-game home runs by Keith Moreland and Ron Say. And, uh, but, but to answer your question about the, it, I've always, well, not always, but uh, in recent years, I have wondered the same thing. What were the Phillies doing? Basically, trading most of their 1980 World Series team to the Cubs. And they were pennant winners later. in '83 too. And all I could think of is, especially the Dernier and Matthews trade. They're like, well, trade them to the, trade, we can trade them to the Cubs. It's never going to come back to hurt us. It's the Cubs. It's just like, honestly, we could probably park them there, and if we need them, we can just call Dallas and get them back. Right. Yeah. Like saying they, they know they're the, on the business end of the Cubs for the entire that, season. That's wonderful. That explanation makes the most. And honestly, did Paul Owens, was he the GM, I think, that succeeded, or, or he ended up having to come down to manage them? Or They were pennant, They were defending National League champs. They had uh, gotten, I think, swept by the Orioles or lost in five games, but they – uh, they were coming off their second pennant in fourth, four years and first without Dallas Green as their manager. And that's a great point because what well, the hell is Bill Campbell going to do? That was um, Jed Hoyer <laughs> Sr. was the general manager of the Phillies, and he was getting ready for the next great Phillies team. So he was just like, get rid of these guys. Get them out of here. Get, we're, we're getting ready for the next great Phillies team, not this great Phillies team. Yeah, go away. But unlike Jed Jr., who learned his lesson and he scatters the players to you know individually. Don't don't put them all on one team. He this guy Jed Hoyer Sr. gave them all to the Cubs. <laughs> Jed Jed Jr.'s like, uh-uh, no, I'm not sending Rizzo and Bryant and Bahavi all to one place because they might come back and beat us. All right, exactly. That's the difference. I do love that theory because that stigma was so true. The it Cubs, has people to like Pete Rose and Schmidt, like everybody just nobody ever like the Cubs were so woeful. I mean, yeah, there was the burp in '69, but like they uh, that is absolutely the Phillies were the dominant team. The X, all the everybody was taking terms being good in that division except the Cubs. The Pirates even had won a World Series five years earlier. Because I mean, they're this team is lousy with Phillies, mm-hmm. Sandberg, 
Boa, Matthews, Dernier, Moreland, right? Yep, yep, yeah, for Mike Kruko. Um That was the trade there. Uh, Dickie Knowles was still in on the 84 Cubs. Um, then there's like Ruthven's an old Philly, right? Yeah, for Willie Hernandez. See, Ruthven had been acquired the year before for the next year's American League MVP and Cy Young. How the about Warren that? Warren Brewster. Yes, correct. He was he came from the White Sox. Porphy. Yep. He played five games for the 84 Cubs. Brewster came I mean, with Trout. On their like uh, on their the 25 Sox. man roster, half. more than a yeah, almost half of it is guys yeah. who played for the Phillies. And then there are the other guys like Ron, I know you always goof on Ron Say cuz he was old and whatever, but like for me, you know, I talked about Bump Wills being the more abstract uh, two-dimensional ops guys because they are only existed in, in trading cards. Like Ron Say was the guy that oh he was had that royalty whatever. Yeah, he was old and whatnot, but he he was when we had Ron Say that was you know on the team the year before club and twenty-five homers. It just felt different. Yeah, and I think Say finished in '84. Yeah, I think he finished fourth in homers and fifth in RBIs in the National League. Okay, he seventh. No, no, yes, he, except against lefties he would bet clean up. I there was I remember how it would work. He he was down in the order. Interesting thing, uh six Cubs had at least eighty RBIs that year. Nobody had a hundred. Three had ninety, three were in the nineties, three were in the eighties. I mean they just they were just they just put it together as as we'll see. They didn't really, you know but pat, patching those holes in center I guess going into the season if they don't make that trade, I can't even remember who their center fielder would be. Would it have been Durham and Buckers at first? Durham was a two time all stars an outfielder. He played been, some yeah. center, some right. Mel Hall maybe could have been it. Uh they had enough pieces to start, but then Dernier not only gave him a center fielder, but a leadoff hitter and then Matthews. It's just incredible. Could have been Henry uh, Cotto. Yeah. Well, we'll get to Henry, uh, the series in Philly in, in August. The, uh, he, when he was called upon, he stepped up. But so, after that, what? After go ahead. So the '84 okay. Cubs. Remember, there's only 12 teams in the National League at this time. But uh, the '84 right. Cubs, first in runs, third in doubles, third in triples, second in homers, um, fourth in stolen bases. Okay, this Turn is here. a very uncomfortable. First in walks. Oh, okay. Wow. That was a well-rounded. Um, very veteran. Very veteran. They led the league in wins because they had the best record in the National 96. League. Second they, in um, saves. First the, in. The, uh, and the, how about this? So the Cubs, the 84 Cubs, drew the most walks, allowed the fewest. Issued the fewest, huh? There you go, kids. That's how you team. That's how you, that still works today. As a very the, uh... as the 2016 Cubs <laughs> will tell you, it also works. So they come home from the West Coast road trip alive, and their home opener is on Friday the 13th. And I remember I come home from school, come home from sixth grade because you know I didn't stay home for all the openers, just the opening day. And uh, and I walk in the door and I see the starting pitcher for the Mets that day. The Mets were like the kind of contrast that come; they're a very young team. And I see the pitcher walking off the mound, having gotten shellacked. Uh, pretty impressive-looking African-American name. What's his real name? Dwight. I forget his middle name. Dwight Gooden. Um, first I ever saw him getting his ears pinned back by the Cubs, and uh, and he did. I, I rewatched this game on YouTube, and uh, Steve Trout conversely got about 15 worm burners, but. I only bring this up because um, the next time, and we'll get to it not right away, but the next time the, the Cubs would face Gooden, he had a chip on his shoulder. 
Because apparently he didn't like how the Cubs had, uh, uh, I don't know, kept maybe stealing a base or two. I don't know. They, when I looked at the video, they just kept hitting the shit out of him. Yeah, and, well, uh, the Cubs hit four homers in the game. But how many do you think they hit off of Dwight? Not that many. Tidrow gave up one to Say. They gave up Dick Tidrow none. came back. Say That's hit. Right. Um, Actually, there were a lot of cheap hits on Gooden, but one, still. Yeah. Say it went off Ed Lynch. Ed Lynch came in, in the, the game. Yep. Jody hit one. Gary Matthews. Oh, sorry, just three. Just uh, just three. And But that was um, Jody's with uh, Craig Swan. And sorry, yep. it was off Tidrow. Yeah, you know, the, he was kind of dinked and dunked, whatever. He had good stuff. I mean, Harry and Steve were talking about it. It was opening day. It was a festive atmosphere. You get a little Milo. You get a little, like, you know, Bob Collins stopping by the booth and, uh, you know, all that stuff. But <laughs> yeah, it was I'm going to go fly yeah. by playing over a hospital. <laughs> I was going to. But uh, Harry, was in, Harry was in rare form or into it. Uh, Harry was in rare form. Uh, Trout gave basically a precursor to how he would do this year. It would be a career year for for, uh, for Rainbow. Complete game. Uh, complete yeah, complete game. game. Shut up. The only blemish was a homer to George Foster, who went oppo, who is still playing for the Mets. Like, George Foster was still on the Mets in April. Dick Tidrow, uh after being traded to the White Sox in that Warren Brewster trade, apparently he had to do a mustache-for-mustache mustache deal. Um, that's how the Cubs actually got Brewster, even though you're right, he was a Philly. Um, like the starting shortstop for the Mets in this game was uh, Ray or not Ray, it was uh, Luis Luis. What's the guy's uh, Jose Akendo? Jose Akendo, who broke his thumb on a play there, and like Steve Stone was just clutching pearls at the Mets were losing their great young shortstop, <laughs> and we we would never hear Jose from uh, from from uh, Okendo again for the rest of the year. They had a few other uh, where the Mets would change. Obviously, the Cubs would change. Uh, you know, from that point. And, and really, nothing really happens after that. The Cubs win the next day. Sunday gets rained out, which will set up some beautiful doubleheaders later. And then, whatever, we're off We're off in the season. The Cubs are off to a better start than we've ever seen already, even if they're only like, you know, six and four. Um, and they face the Mets again in, in New York, and Gooden's on the hill, and now Gooden's already becoming a sensation. When he faced the Cubs in April, he was coming off his major league debut, and I guess he str- had struck out like 10 Astros or something. Cubs not really pin his ears back, but they, they knock him out of the box and then Gooden starts to become a thing. And so when they meet up again, uh, he kind of, you know, well, this humiliates is a, a matchup of aces. Is it Ruthven? Yeah. <laughs> the first of like five matchups that year. <laughs> I remember being so pissed. Like, Why does Ruthven have to be the guy that pitches against Gooden every time? Except for the first, except for the first time. How old was Dick Ruthven? Cause as a kid, I remember thinking Dick Ruthven was like, was 50 years old. He was Dude, he looked 33. He was paunchy. <laughs> He's our opening day starter. 33 years old, day for it. Um, you know, and then I even put in that link there, but like I found like an article, a UPAI article that after the game, like Gooden's got some quotes. He was motivated for the Cubs. Uh, he he cried that they had the game won earlier in the month and they were running and stuff. He said they were hot dogging in the game. So, you know, I got a little bit of flavor here. It's May. And again, you and me have never seen the Cubs even this competent in May. So we're already and we're gonna follow this team anyway. So it's 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 kind of you know, we're we're soaking all of this in at this point. Uh and that's you know, leave that there. They don't actually play the Mets again until a lot of other stuff happens. So we'll come back to that. But that's setting the stage there. Cubs and Mets both get off to good starts, face each other in April, face each other in May. And then that's that's kind of uh, where we're at. 
I pointed out a game in May that I just remember watching game of the week where Jody hit a, uh, like a 460 foot homer to straightaway center off of uh, Frank DePino to uh, steal a game against the Astros um, in the top of the ninth inning. And I remember thinking like the Astros was always a house of horrors, mostly because the Cubs were bad, but it was weird. It was indoors. It was loud. And so always bad things always seem to happen. So I remember like thinking, you know, Jody, one of my guys, one of my favorite players, along with Leon Durham and Keith Moreland, uh, what a, just a huge clutch homer in a cavern of a ballpark. That was uh, an otherwise insignificant game in May, but Cubs didn't win games like that, and they didn't win games like that before because they weren't that good. So that was a uh, Jody's homer was a full count, two out, three run homer to turn it like a sure thing again. <laughs> Of Joni Crow, which is a sure thing. Three to two Astro win into a five three yep. club lead. How about the fact how about how this or uh, for Frank DePino, uh Joe had started the inning. He got run after uh after Say walked with one out. And then they brought Frank yeah. DePino in. But how about the how about how this inning ends? So they hit the home run, they go up, and then uh Bobby Dernier singles. Dave Smith, future Cub star, Dave Smith comes mm-hmm. in. And this is the this you know, when you're reading on baseball reference. <laughs> so uh, Bob's on first. Ryan Sandberg singles. Dernier out at home. Right field to third base to catcher to third base. Right field third base catcher. Okay. Yeah, I got hung up. I don't know how Bob all of a sudden was rounding third, but he got he got hung up and he got out. Or maybe he was in a rundown right away and it almost scored. That's okay. Lee Arthur was on uh, to, to put it out. He, had, he gave the, him a uh, run. He got, he got, things got nervy. He was... Uh, Gave up a one-out double. Jose Cruz drove in Craig Reynolds to pull it within. One. Jose stole second. Then Jerry Monty ah. struck out. Future Cup Jerry Monty. And then Enos Cabell flew out to right. To we know, remember, all of those guys. And, and Jose Cruz, of course, was for years known as the most underrated player in the game until, like, at some point, it's like you can't keep calling that because he's not underrated. He had so while stance, too, which I just never liked. While the first two months are unfolding and the Cubs actually look like they might not suck for the first time in a while, um, you know, I mentioned Bill Buckner, um, not in the opening day lineup. And that was an interesting thing too, about the Dwight Gooden uh, home opener at Wrigley was that uh, Buckner got the biggest ovation and Durham was pressing early in the season and he was getting booed. Uh, our guy bull, uh, he'd struck out like the first three times and then he knocked a triple off the wall later on in that game. But, uh, you know, that'd be fine, but it was a, it was a strange situation because Buckner was, you know, borderline hall of fame player. He was a, you know, nationally batting champion for the Cubs. He was, he was everyone, one of everyone's probably just about every Cub fans favorite player. And he wasn't washed up. He would go on to have at least one 200 hit season with Boston, but they just, uh, Dallas green was moving on. And then the other thing that was going on here uh, is the platoon in right field between Keith Moreland and Mel Hall. At one point, I don't know if you could find it, but Mel Hall had popped off to reporters about not being happy about being in a platoon. That would take care of itself a little bit later. But as for Buckner, the rumors were swirling. We knew he was gone. It was kind of weird. He would play in some games. Uh, he actually got a hit off of Gooden when Gooden got his revenge against the Mets, I noticed. And then finally, after some rumors, I remember hearing it, Dennis Eckersley, another one of those mythical American League players, you know, he, he had thrown a no-hitter once and also won 20 games, um, kind of been a little up and down. Um, and that was uh, ultimately how it shook out by the end of May at Buckner after, what, seven years as our first baseman was gone. And uh, 
now we got some pitchers. You know, this, this is the team that Dick Ruthman and Chuck Rainey pitching the first two games. So even though we had Sanderson and Trout, that's uh, a need that had uh, had to be addressed. So are we sure that it was this, the trade was for Eckersley? I'm sure, it wasn't Buckner for Mike Bromley with Eckersley just thrown in. Yeah, I want to say part, based, key part of that based, trade was. I believe Mike we referenced Brumley. the summer of '87 when Mike Bromley got his got his chance alongside Paul Noche. In the summer of Paul of Sean Dunson and Ryan Sandberg both being out, uh, the results were not good. How about this? Eck is old enough that when he was traded to the Red Sox, one from of the guys Cleveland. Yep, from Cleveland. One of the guys traded with him was Jason Kendall's dad, Fred. No shit. Really? Yep. Was that was that trade necessitated at all by Cleveland Indians outfielder Rick Manning's behavior, or is that all? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I'm sure it bothered Dennis more then than it does now. Where we talked about this, where he just freely talked about it on no, broadcast. You know, he's cool oh, there's my now. good buddy Rick Manning. You know, he's well, still Bill, married to my ex-wife. Bill Lee wrote about it from the Red Sox angle when he was teammates with Eckersley, and then they were he had to face Manning and how much Lee admired Eckersley for not drilling him. So it took every ounce of strength that he probably had. Uh, so Eckersley's debut occurs on a Sunday. I think it was Memorial Day weekend. I remember I slept over at my buddy Kevin O'Hee's house. They were Sox fans. We we're watching the game the next day. I'm stoked. Uh, here's Eck. Here's the guy. guy we've seen before with the handlebar mustache or whatever. Uh, but this game is going to be remembered for about a one, like a 40-minute delay that occurred after um, Ron Say had hit a controversial three-run homer near the left field foul pole off of noted red and red-ass Mario Soto. And uh, the full game is on YouTube, so Andy, be sure to drop that for uh, any of the people that don't know how to Google Cubs, Reds, (laughs) May 1984. May 27th to be exact. So I like to point out this game. I remember watching. I, I couldn't. I couldn't believe it was 40 minutes. Like watching it as a kid, you remember the the fracas and like, but it's like it was so ridiculous. Like the umpires had lost total control. It was not a home run, but whoever the I forget who the third base owner called it a home run, and then they overturned it. And Jim Fry was indignant, but Don, Don Zimmer in his cartoonish best was completely <laughs> unhinged. And at one point, I think what happened was Mario Soto was a great pitcher. I think he eventually had arm trouble. He was a really good pitcher for four or five years. Uh, one of the top pitchers in the National League. And I think what happened, what was going on is that, and you watch the video, I forget, uh, it's like, like hour 20 where this happens. I think Soto was just annoyed because he was pitching in the delay. You know, he was going to you know freeze up a little bit. So at one point, you know, you think they're going to resume and then something else happens and this and that, and like benches were kind of clearing. It was just all this craziness. But Zimmer at one point was arguing with the umpire and then Soto, you couldn't really capture Like you just hear Harry go, Whoa! like, you know, not really able to describe it. And, and there was no live camera caught it. And they would show, a, Arnie would show a replay. It was a weird angle and kind of blurry. But it was like it seemed like Soto just wanted to kick the shit out of Don Zimmer because that old man is just wasting everybody's time causing a scene out there. And the catcher, and I don't know if it was Dan Billardello or what, was trying to stop Soto. And then it looked like they were tag teaming to trip to knock Zimmer down, which is exactly what happened. It was Brad and I remember Golden. It, it, okay, that's who it is. But and Dan I remember Villadello did play in the game, but he didn't. And, and I remember hearing like word on the street, like was that people at the park said that Zimmer swallowed his chew and ended up zooking on the grass too. But <laughs> but 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 what happened was like Zimmer had to be 
you know, tended to, you know, like he got knocked over. He's an old man and stuff. And then, you know, flash forward 19 years, I'm in my living room and I'm watching the American League Championship Series and I see Pedro Martinez uh, storm towards a much older Don Zimmer and throw his throw him to the turf uh, by his helmet-plated head. And I'm thinking, I don't know what, what it is. Is it the steel helmet that somehow just incites certain Latin pitchers to just attack Don Zimmer? But um, whatever it is, it happened in 1984 before with Mario Soto before it happened with Pedro. But that was Dennis Eckersley's debut. So with the 40-minute delay, is that why Soto only pitched one inning? Yeah, I think he was just gotten cold. So he had Maybe, a... Uh, he had a and a Don Zimmer swallowed his chew delay, and that drove Mario out of the game. Bob Ochinko came in and pitched four per scoreless Did he not get ejected then? Maybe I, I don't yeah, know if he, he got, got ejected out. for He pitched a full his... inning. Well, I think maybe there's nobody. Off the field. Yeah, well, you said say batted seven, so he probably won two, three in the first. Oh, so that was probably the end. It ended up being the end of the first. It was a three-run homer. Well, I think when the game resumed, it was say was still batting, and it was probably another pitcher. This is quite a line a for, for Eckersley. Eckersley pitched a complete game. Nine innings, lost. gave up nine hits, four runs, struck out three, walked one. He pitched well. Scattered nine hits. He would win ten games. Um, so that was trade number one. And then trade number two, I don't know exactly when it was, but it was a few weeks later, and that was a much bigger trade uh, for more for another pitcher and more players. And, you know, in retrospect, obviously – uh, paid off even more. So, yeah, I'm not familiar with that trade. Did when the guy ever the go sucker. on to do anything for the Cubs? This fat guy from Cleveland that they traded for? Who, Mel Hall? <laughs> so, that trade was, I should probably look this up. Was that trade in May still? June. The, 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 the deadline, deadline back was June then 15th. Was June 15th, yeah, yes. Bad. And then, um, but so they make the trade. It's um, I'm going to get the date on it because I a lot of, in June things start obviously started getting interesting because that's the thing. Yeah, you got Eckersley. All of a sudden, this team's pretty good, and Buckner's a trade ship, and Eckersley has a good first outing though he doesn't win. And then uh, it was what was the trade here? Hold on. Uh, da, da, da. Yeah, it, it, well, it couldn't have been after June 15th, and I can still tell you even the. Uh, it was June 13th. All right, so it was right before the deadline. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being a problem, right? Because they they didn't Dallas, Dallas didn't get Mel or maybe it was Joe, one of the two or maybe Mel both, and yeah. didn't get them through cleared through waivers, right? And they Which were, is the same mistake that that Dallas was a little sloppy. You know, we give him his due and he you know, he was pretty iconic, but He was a big on paperwork. That, He's a big Well, and the in the off season going into the 83 season, this actually worked oh, out cuz right. we got Steve Trout. But he didn't protect Fergie Jenkins, and it was a mistake. It was, or he was trying to sneak him through. I don't know what it was. And the White Sox supposedly made overtures. Imagine that, like 38-year-old Fergie Jenkins. But Fergie was decent in 82, and he would be their opening day starter in 83. Uh, so, like, supposedly this Cubs-Sox trade that was made was basically the Sox had green over a barrel. That's why we had to give up such greats like Pat Tabler and Scott Fletcher and Dick Tidrow. Uh, but we got Warren Brewster and Steve Trout. But uh, – but yeah, they, supposedly Green was forced into that trade because uh, he, had, you know, had left Fergie unprotected. And then this trade was announced, and then all of a sudden, well, whoa, whoa, whoa! You didn't put Mel Hall and Joe Carter through waivers, so it's not official yet. 
So that means Sutcliffe wouldn't make his start uh, for 10 days or 11 days. And it, um, yeah, it held it up and it's kind of, it screwed up the rotation. And Sutcliffe tells a great story about they go to, uh, or they, Philly, the Phillies come in and sweep the Cubs in four games. And it's like they lose 11 to 2, 5 to 2, 8 to 2, and 9 to 7. They're pitching like shit. And so Billy Connors calls a meeting for the pitchers. He's got them all in the clubhouse. He's just chewing every one of the pitchers up and down one side or the other. And Sucklip is sitting in the back like, well, at least I haven't even pitched. He can't get mad at me. And he gets about halfway through the ring. He turns and he sees Sucklip and he goes, and when the fuck are you going to do something? (laughs) 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 And Rick's like, well, um, I can't. And you know what? I don't remember the four-game sweep, but that tracks. And I'm just going to say that I, I wanted to bring up one game that I was at because, you know, we talked about the randomness of going to uh, games. and So this is my first one, June 14th. And Steve Carlton was pitching. So though, let's face it, like we grew up, we'd see Nolan Ryan on TV, Tom Seaver. But, like, the odds are you're not probably not going to see those guys in person when you're a kid, right? Because – they're pitchers. It has to fall right. And so uh, I never saw any of those other guys. It just so happened that on a day we decided to go Steve Carlton. So that's that's fact number one. Uh, but the others I, re- I remember going to this game is that I went with my brother, took my mom's car, which was like a 1974 Volkswagen Beetle. You took your mom's car? Uh, I was 12. 12 but my brother was, was nine. Like your brother, I didn't you're know how to drive. A, you're sitting on a phone booth. Your brother's running the pedals with his hands. I don't and the clutch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was 19, and then it'd be one or two of his friends. I think my sister went. You know, it was the 80s. There might have been nine of us piled into this Beetle. You know, it's it's uh, it was a different time. Uh, it was a mom's car. It was a little bit beat up. You know, we weren't exactly rolling in it, and uh, you know, getting by here. 1984. Uh, thrilled to be going to a Cubs game. We're driving down, and from the northwest suburbs, from Elk Grove, the other side of O'Hare. And once we get east of O'Hare on the Kennedy, car starts sputtering whatnot so we got to get off so we're near enough to the cumberland stop uh that we're able to like get the car into a location and then take the l so it on the tracks and hopped on the train that's right just let you know we'll have to, we'll have to come up with a story to tell mom a little bit later so we get down there and we get uh, down to the game we're sitting in the bleachers because whenever we go as a group you know it's the easiest simplest cheapest way to go so one of the things i remember number one Steve Carlton's pitching, and I mainly remember this because of this douchebag in the front row that had his kid with him at the game that wouldn't shut the hell up about, my old man took me to a game when Jim Maloney no-hit the Cubs. And he just and Carlton went like five no-hit innings in this game, right? And so I've listened to this Cubs fan that's, uh, that's basically hoping to get a Steve Carlton no-hitter. Uh, and then who breaks it up, of course, but long-time Steve Carlton nemesis and uh, itinerant fifth or sixth Cubs outfielder Gary Woods, who truly does have the most remarkable career statistics against uh, Steve Carlton. Um, I don't have, like, the baseball reference access, uh, the exclusive ship to, like, do those filters, but I did look it up, and it's ridiculous. Uh, Gary Woods did break up Steve Carlton's no-hitter, up yours, lefty, in, like, the sixth inning. Cubs did lose, because you said that was the first of a four-game sweep, and uh, the, the Sutcliffe trade happened, like, two days later. Um, but here's the part where I have to share this story. Game's over. We take the L back to Cumberland. We had, probably took the 152 Addison bus up to the Addison train station, take the L back. Not sure what, but my dad was going to help us get home. 
he worked uh, over by the United Center, the Teamsters building over there on the west side. He drove to work. So he may have actually picked us up from Wrigley Field. I can't remember. He probably did that. He probably shot over after work, picks us up from the park. We drive out towards Cumberland Avenue, and um, the car is dead. We're not getting this thing home. So to get home, it's only about nine miles, but there's Tui Avenue, you know, and it's rush hour. Basically, four of us sat in the Beetle. My brother kept the car in neutral, and we rolled it out into the street, and my dad and his car proceeded to just push us oh, Jesus. all the way home at the end of this day in which we saw Steve Carlton. We made it. Now, you know, it's kind of a tricky thing, right? You're coming up on an intersection like, all right, I'm going to break. Yeah. Don't ram into me. And then, all right, now it's green. you got to sort of nudge me and start pushing me into the intersection. And so we made it home safely. Uh, eventually, the Beetle got fixed. And uh, But, yeah, so I, unlike you, uh, not every Cubs game I went to in 1984 did I, I see the Cubs win because they lost that day. Yeah, so before that series, they had um, – so on the day they traded for Sutcliffe, on the 13th of June, they beat the Expos 7-4, to four, and they had a one-and-a-half game lead in the National League East. In June. And then they lost four in a row to the Phillies, and they were two games mm-hmm. back. June swooned. I just probably. Swoon. The... Oh, yeah. no. They beat we're the, hearing it. They beat the Pirates, but then they lost two more in a row, so they've lost six out of seven. And the Cardinals are coming to town, and oh, shit. And what did the Cubs do? They. Got to talk about. I got to talk about the Friday game first. Sorry. Oh. We both have Sanders. So, real quick, because for years I could not realize that this was the day because for some reason I didn't think that I played baseball games on Friday and I thought I was looking for a weeknight game I just remember for some odd reason that Mark Salas was in this game because I thought that was a funny name and he was but I couldn't find it thinking I was looking for a Wednesday and Tuesday until it dawned on me Uh, no sometimes we do play games and the reason I bring this up is again I'm 12 years old how am I getting to games my parents work the Cubs don't have night games right um and this day, my sister, my other sister that wasn't with me at the Phillies game, she tells me that uh, she's going to the Cubs game with her friends. Their mom's driving. My sister's 15. And I don't know if they had an extra ticket or they just invited me, but of course, you're a kid. It's like everything goes out the window, including the fact that I had a game. Um, but just to point it out, like I loved playing baseball as much as I loved watching the Cubs. So it was just completely like my mind just brain farted. What? Cubs game? Let's go. This was early in the three o'clock days of Dallas Green, I believe. I think Friday games. Were, I don't know exactly. I know I'm pretty sure it was a three o'clock game, and I was oblivious to the fact that I had a game. And we're in the upper deck. We're not in the bleachers. I'm sitting with my sister and her friends and her mom. Nice enough to take me. I'm enjoying the game. I'm keeping score. I'm eating some nachos. I'm talking to my sister. She's asking how my baseball season's going. I'm pretty good. So like, when's your next game? Oh shit! No, I'm sitting all the way in Wrigley Field. <laughs> it's like five o'clock. You have a game tonight, and so I'm like, yeah, and I'm freaking out. My dad's a manager; he's gonna kill him. Like, he's gonna like, what is wrong with that moron? What is he doing going to a Cubs game? And we left early, and I, I think they were ready to go, so it wasn't like I was completely being a pain in the ass. And I just remember we didn't even take the interstate; we didn't take the Kennedy. We're again crawling down like Oakden or Tui. I'm just like clenching. Um, and I did make it to the game like by the third inning, but I just, uh, but again, it kind of speaks to the fact that. Hey, anyway, someone asked if, I'm, if I go to a Cubs game. I'm 12 years old. You know, what do I have going on this morning? But Cubs did win that game, and in retrospect, that was a big game. Yeah. So the next day, I'm always amazed when we tell this story that, that we left for vacation on a Saturday. Like a farmer and a school teacher needed to wait till Saturday to go on vacation. Um, in June. 
in June. Yeah, it's not like mom was working. Okay, we got to wait for your mother to finish. And then, um, but we are on our way to... We were going to Washington, D.C. That was the big trip. We were going to hit Gettysburg on the way out. The big D.C. trip. Go to... And then come back around and go through Ohio just so we could go to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I mean, we were... <laughs> and my brother and my sister, who were both... One's nine years old to me, one's eight, were, you know, they were older. They weren't going on family vacation, so it's going to be me and mom and dad. And um, on our way, we, dad's got to go around Chicago. And he's apparently got a little cub fever. So we decide we're going to go through Chicago. And we end up... Uh, Getting off at Addison and driving down to the lake? We end up at the McDonald's across from... Uh, Across from the park. Um, no, we went. Dad just assumed because this was a Cubs. We're just gonna go get tickets. We're just gonna go up and we're just gonna walk up and buy them. It's Cubs. Well, you can't buy even in nineteen eighty in June of nineteen eighty four. You couldn't buy Cub Cardinal tickets at the just bleachers. So, um, and we didn't. We didn't get there early enough. I'm sure it was Mom's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like she would have loved to have. So they the offered, bleachers. but they did have standing room only tickets. We could have had standing room only. And Dad could tell from the non like I was I was up for it. It didn't matter. You could have told me that I had to like stand on right. top of the scoreboard. I would have been up Give there. Me I don't really care. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mom was not all that enthused about standing for God knows how long for the Cubs when we we're supposed to be on our way. Um, so he tried to talk her into it. Decided it wasn't going to happen. And we hopped in the car and we started heading east. And. Early on in the game, we realized we had made a great decision. Like, oh, we, and I've always wondered what would have happened if we had gone, because the Cubs were down seven to one seven in the to second one. inning, mm-hmm. and I just have a feeling that they would have been like, all right, fuck this, this we got to go. Mm-hmm. That would have been worse. We only paid for standing room. Yeah, it's only to have five actually bucks. bought the tickets, gone in, and then bailed uh, before uh, during one. Yeah, of, this was, was a mistake. It was bad enough that we were standing in front of the stadium with a chance to buy tickets and we didn't go in. It would have been worse if we had bought them, went in, and then after two innings said, all right, we got to start. we got to drive through Indiana and Ohio today. Um, So we hop in the car, and we're heading, we're listening to the game. And I remember I was scoring the game uh, in the car. I used to do that sometimes, like watch it on TV. And and I gave up at some, probably when it was seven to one. I was like, fuck this. I'm running out of the Cardinals. are like screwing up my columns. And I'm like, all right, I'm done. And as as the comeback has started, we're getting more and more excited um, and we're getting to the the, the Cardinals um, have a one run lead and Suter's coming in in the ninth, and the f- signal is fading, and we figure well we're probably just going to hear, you know, one two three Cubs lose, and then, I mean, instead we hear the first Sandberg home run and like, we go nuts in the car, and, um, but yeah. now it's we got to get through uh, two more innings. In 1984, with a Chrysler New Yorker antenna trying to haul. Well, yeah, GN, GN always has had a strong yeah. signal, though. I've picked it up out in Carolina at night. Oh. And it would go in and it would go out, and then, but at least in my <laughs> in my recollection, it came back. We, I know we heard the homer in the tenth to tie it, and I'm fairly sure. No, it was the it was the ninth and tenth. Ninth and tenth. Hits an yeah. homer in the ninth to tie it. Has to hit another homer in the tenth to tie it. Yeah, and then yeah. the great Dave Owen wins it in the eleventh. Because really, it's the Dave Owen game. It's not the Rangers. It is. Game. I mean, he didn't. Sandberg didn't win the game. He well, tied it twice. So I did not come as close to coming to that game. 
I, I had an opportunity almost to meet with Bill Murray because I was at a dinner when he got inducted into the Irish American Heritage Center. And my sister-in-law was kind enough to purchase a table. Um, and if you haven't been to the Irish American Heritage Center on the northwest side, you're missing out. Uh, you can also YouTube or Google a Conan O'Brien bit that he does from there. It's an old school that has been turned into a bastion of uh, of just Irish uh, culture, which is mostly revolved around drinking. There's bars on every floor and whatnot. Drinking and dead potatoes. And uh, that's correct. And the year that Bill Murray was honored as uh, one of the annual Hall of Fame inductees to the Irish American Center, he uh, uh, he visited and all the Murray brothers were there. And uh, I remember I was in a room upstairs in the ballroom, uh, knocking back a few beers. And I'm like, you know, at first I'm like, I don't want to bother Bill. I'm like, wait, even though I didn't pay, I'm too cheap. But like, we're here. We paid to be here. Let's go. You know, I, I, I got to go shake Bill Murray's hand. But I kind of waited too long. So I finally get in line and the lines crawling the lines around and, and I've got the story in my mind that I'm going to tell here that I was going to tell Bill Murray. Here's the thing. There were two very young, very attractive women in front of me and this line was going on a long way and I'd had a few beers and I might've been maybe tilting a little bit and by the time I would get all of the front and then these two young ladies go up and Bill's very happy to see them. And his handler kind of looks at me, looks at them. He's like, that's probably a good place to draw the line. Like <laughs> <laughs> I knew the line was going to get cut off at some point because it had been there. So I did not actually get my chance and I probably would have flubbed it anyway. What I would have told him was that on June 23rd, 1984, uh, first of all, my dad uh, got tickets at the last, my brother came running in the door. He was my brother, I guess would have been like 21 years old, 20, 21. He was at Northern. He was going to Northern, but he was home that summer. My dad was cutting the grass. My brother comes bursting. He's like, I got two Cubs tickets. You want to go? Sure. So my dad put his shirt on because Men cut grass shirtless in the uh, you know, through the eighties, and they went off to the Cubs game. So that would that was pretty cool that uh, I knew two yeah. people that ended up going to that game. Uh, me, I was fine, just hanging out, going to watch it on NBC, and uh, same thing. They go down seven to one, and I get a phone call from my buddy Mike down the street, wants to know if I want to go see Ghostbusters. Wow. Laying over, my dad will give us a ride over to Woodfield. I'm like fuck this, the Cubs are down seven to one. I'm wasting my. Let's go. And so we go see Bill Murray's Ghostbusters, uh, epic movie. I mean, let's face it, right? We're talking 1984. Like there is a certain soundtrack, and obviously the Ghostbusters themes is one of them. Remember Cubsbusters? That was. That was big, yeah, but yeah. I see, you know, Rick Moranis and Bill Murray and, and, and the whole gang and uh, get picked up, and I don't know what's going on, right? I don't even care about the Cubs, but I still want to know, how do you find out what happened in the Cubs game in 1984? Unless you're, you know, don't your you parents might the, get mad. Don't you go to the town square and someone is like, has a big go board home. up and they're moving the guys around the bases I, one at a time and recreating I, it? I could not wait for the 15 minutes after or before the hour, the WBBM newscast. <laughs> no, I call 976-1313. Oh, yeah. George Osman call. told you what happened. George. <laughs> and you know what they told me what happened? This is a true story. Cubs win 13-12 to 12 on Dave Owens, RBI single. Because, you know, sports <laughs> phone's just going to do yeah. the, the cap, right? So even though I'm like, wow, they came back and Dave Owen won. And then I had no idea about Sandberg's heroics till like, that night and then you know it kind of grew into a legend obviously but like my whole plague was that yeah i leave the cubs down 7-1 that went 13-12 thanks to dave owen so it is the dave owen game. well and it's funny now had you been a fan of like a, a really big fan of a team other than the cubs 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Um, and you, and your favorite team was on Saturday baseball on NBC. You probably wouldn't have left. You probably would have stayed and watched right. it because it would have been that rare. It was still cool whenever the Cubs were on like, the game of the week. Was that spoiled. was cool, but we were spoiled because mm-hmm. we could see every, every game. game was on Channel Nine anyway. Yep, yeah, and that was the, and, you know, again no lights. So like, what are you doing in the summer at twelve? You don't have a job. And like you know, I didn't watch every game. I, I you know, I pl- would play pickup games yeah. or go swimming. But the Cubs are invariably on. You you watch a few innings. Like they're yeah. always on when they're at home during the day. And we watch. So we watch more Cubs games than other kids would watch their team. Well, in the summer, you could actually watch it more. So yeah. So yeah, I'm, I take it for granted. Like yeah, I don't need to stick around for this. And that's the other thing too. If you're a fan in another city and you're not even seeing the games, you don't have a sports phone. They're not going to tell you. Little did you know, really though, tell you local stores. For, when, when you were in your 40s, the Cubs would would found an entire network that would show that game over and over and over I know. again. And you feel like you never missed it because you've seen it. It was it was Bruce Suter, former Cubs Cy Young Award winner, um, and then and so and. I, I'm glad you put it in the context of that losing streak because then the next day something iconic happened. The next day, you know what that was? So fr- Friday's the day that Huey forgot he had a baseball game, the Cubs win. Sandberg game on Saturday. Sunday is actually Rick Suckler's Cubs debut. Oh, yeah. Home debut, home debut. He debuted in Pittsburgh for that only victory. So, like, yeah. what you're talking about was uh, the four – Losses in a row to Philly. Sutcliffe shows up, freaking stops it. He did that all season, by the way, I noticed. And then they lose the last two games to, to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh sucked, by the way, but they were the only team to have a winning record against the Cubs. And then the Cubs bounce off the mat with sweeping St. Louis, punctuated by Sutcliffe in his home debut, uh, throwing a fucking shutout. How's that? Yeah, through five How's hitter. That? Shut out the Shut out the Cardinals, who made three errors. Well, and the Cardinals were just two years removed from a World Series themselves, so they got uh, they got their comeuppance. Yeah, so Sutcliffe, nine innings, five hits, one walk, 14 strikeouts. So awesome. Shoved it up the Cardinals. Just um, wanted to cover one more game. That Cardinal, that, that Cardinal lineup he faced had two future managers in it. Oh? Is Jose Okendo? 
they been traded? No, no, he's never, he's never been a manager. Um, Art Howe and Mike oh. Jorgensen. Oh, very good. Um, before the Cubs went to the West Coast for the second time in another challenging trip that they would survive, there was one more game or games that I got to go to. It's again crazy. Twelve year old, no car, you know, no access otherwise. But I had you talked about the Rockford uh, Library. Well, the Elk Grove Park District would have like the one game a year that you could go to. They would bus us down, right? So I'd have to get a parent to take me. And the, the beautiful thing about it was the game in question would take place on Tuesday, June 26th. And because it what had to have been an early season rainout, yep. we I actually got to go to my April first 22nd. real doubleheader. And it's hilarious to think about because I think nowadays, like the parkers would be like, whoa, 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 we're not taking your kid for 10 hours. Yeah. We're going to one game. First of all, you don't have traditional doubleheaders. Right. Comes wouldn't have let you go to both games. But even if no. they had. Unless. Right. So, yeah. but I think if they had, I think local would be like, I, I think it's just funny that me and a bunch of other, like anywhere from like 10 to 15 year old kids got on the bus. There were, there was a 20 year old, like chaperone cause she knew my brother and she was pretty cool. I was kind of hanging out with her. Um, and so, yeah, there were adults, but it was like, you know, they bus us down and we, we were just basically at Wrigley field for seven hours, but bringing it back to the pirates, they sucked. They had a first baseman named Jason Thompson, who he was a former Tiger. He was like this 220 hitter that could hit 30 homers, and he was an absolute Cub killer for a brief period of time. The Cubs could not beat the Pirates. And I, I said this in passing earlier, which it would prove out to be true, that they were the only team in the National League that had a winning record against the Cubs, and they themselves were in last place of no consequence, sucked against everybody else. They were a pain in the Cubs' ass. And even that doubleheader, the Cubs came back to win the second one. They had to fight really hard, but they got embarrassed by the same score as a forfeited game in the first one, nine zip. Uh, and then they would win. They they would they would draw a split in this four game series, thanks to the walk off when uh, Chuck Tanner brought in six infielders, and uh, I think Durham got a big hit off of Al Holland. But the Cubs are kind of sputtering a little bit. You can see a lot of L's there, right? That June swoon, but they you know Suckliff has now won two starts. They got to go on the West Coast. And that was when Suckliff would actually have his only loss to a young Oral Hershiser. And they'd always talk about like the drama and the emotions that Suckliff had because Tommy Lasorda, prick that he was, it was pretty well known that Lasorda really stuck it to Suckliff uh, in the 80, what uh, what was the 81 uh, Dodger World Championship yep. team? Suckliff would have been the rookie of the year in 1979, was left off of the 81 playoff roster, and Suckliff supposedly turned Lasorda's office upside down. Uh, again, I don't think anyone in America can fault him for doing that. And uh, and he struggled both times against the Dodgers. When when they came back to Chicago, the Cubs bailed him out. I don't think he got a decision. But uh, And then after that, Suckliff was like he was against the Cardinals uh, the day after the Sandberg game. And then they held yeah, their own the, on that. The cold, Cubs had cold. been before they started that. They got that four-game sweep against the Phillies. They were, oh, they were nine, nine over. They were nine over. Mm-hmm. And they had that. They had that rough patch that went all the way until basically the end of June. But they were six. Well, they won the last. No, they won one game. Anyway, they were they were still tied for first on the at the end of June. So okay. Everybody else must have struggled at the same time. Yep. Yeah, there were there was first, second, third, and if memory serves, I'm pretty sure it was Cubs, Phillies, Mets. The Expos were not a bad team, 
but it was Cubs. No, the only bad team in the division was the Pirates. That was the easily the best and, best division in yes. baseball. And all the money would have been on the Phillies, actually, even though they gave away to the Cubs, their left fielder and center fielder. Uh, the Mets were young, and the Cubs were the Cubs, and the Phillies, you know, were the premier team. Uh, so yeah, they had a two-week run facing all these West Coast teams, but they fa- they fared they held their you know they they, they survived the one out West. They actually strung a little four-game winning streak in there, and then they battled at home. And they're you know they're second place, first place. They're getting through July. And then finally, we go back to New York after almost two whole months. Friday night, Shea Stadium, and I, I think it's fair to say matchup everybody wanted once again for the second, for the second time of the season. And I think it's fair to say Andy, that you and I, uh, uh, being eleven and twelve year olds respectively, we're starting to get a very healthy dose and education. Of the whole 69 Cubs. Yep. I don't think it had really been talked about much at all. But it was a coincidence because, you know, yeah, the, the DeRocher era Cubs were 500, over 500 for several years after 69. The Mets themselves would win another pennant in, what, 73. But for, for the next 10 years, both teams were ass. Well, and, uh, and one of the things I hated about the, about the Mets was, hopefully it was brighter there in person than it was on TV. But Shea always looked so dark. Like it just was like ugh. murky, murky. Yeah. You hear the Cubs? They play in the sunshine. We have we have weeds growing on the wall, and it's all charming. And then there's fucking Shea with that awful, you know, everything looks like crap. And they have that stupid rotten apple out in center field. Yep. And, yep. I agree. Just, Airplanes I flying like, over. Yeah, yeah. The stupid planes. It just felt grimy and bad. Yep. And it's Friday night, and you know it's. Uh, but you could, it was palpable, like like for our parents, like like my, your dad, my dad. There was like that anxiety. It, it was real. Sixty uh, nine was a psychic. Da- it was there was psychic damage there for the fan base. The Mets came out of nowhere. They had like my dad would complain that Wally Bike. Wally Backman reminded him of Al Weiss, who was some like slap hitting 69 Met that would like do shit. Like, so he was having flashbacks, right? And the media, of course, would really be playing. They didn't really talk much about Black Cats and Billy Goats. In fact, like Ron Sando was nowhere to be found in 1984, just for the record, just FYI. He kind of came out of the woodwork when the Cubs became popular again. We all knew who Ernie was, and, and Fergie, of course, had been back, and Billy Williams was a Hall of Famer. Uh, and, and, but we were getting, we started learning about Santo in 84 because of 69 and stuff just the ghosts it was only 15 years but the ghosts were there and then to add to the anxiety friday night new york cubs are in rarefied air for us we we didn't physically live through 69 but now we've got this team that is legitimately in a fucking pennant race in july now we're you know all those demons aside here's this hot shot rookie that has been like hotter than shit since the cubs knocked him out of the box on at the home opener who's already delivered some retribution uh and it was an insane i remember watching it i was just like pit of my stomach and it was a rough night it was a close game ruthven to his credit kept the cubs in it but the cubs could not hit good and uh, at the end of the night, they would be four and a half yeah. games behind the Mets on July 27th. Think about that. Yep. No good. No good. But what happens the next day? Dick Ruthman starts again. <laughs> Girded up his loins. And he said, Old Mr. Magoo, Jim I got, another, I got another six. I'm going to pitch left-handed today. Like, no. 
No, not at all. What happens next is Rick Sutcliffe, our guy. Right? We finally maybe have a guy. I don't know what Sutcliffe has done up until this point. He did not get the decision. He didn't pitch poorly. The Cubs piled it on the Mets bullpen, though. I don't really remember the specifics, but Ron Darling was their number two, and he was harder. So, you know, they, they, they kind of get even there. And then it was the extremely satisfying Sunday doubleheader. Um, and I just remember just luxuriating. We're talking about doubleheaders, just six hours of the Cubs in New York just shoving it up the Mets hiney. Steve Trout with the shutout in the first one. And then our guy, Scott Sanderson, and the Mets couldn't hit all of a sudden. The Cubs did have pitching. Look at that. We, Aside from Ruthven, no offense, you know, Sutcliffe, Trout, Sanderson, and then Eckersley was on ice. Cubs take three or four from the Mets. That felt great. Yeah, and so and after being four and a half out on they Friday New York, night, they left a game and a half out. Two, two pretty days nice. Later. Yeah. Two days later. Uh, and then – then the very next series I've talked about was a very pivotal series. They went into first place against Philly. Very hard-fought series. If you look at each game, I'm pretty sure Bob Dernier did not play in any of the games. I, I promised I promised our listeners uh, Henry Cotto day in the sun. It would be oh, this yeah. series. He got on base a bunch. He made some plays. Uh, the first game, I think it was a 3-2 to two, uh, victory. Sutcliffe held on. The second game, I remember watching it. Rich Bordy starts, pitches his ass off. He's facing one over the minimum, but the Cubs can only score one run. Poor Rich Bordy, who would eventually unfairly be left off the playoff roster. With two out, he's out dueling, I think, defending Cy Young Award winner John Denny. But with two outs in the ninth, rookie Juan Samuel Homers ties it up. Cubs lose a tough one uh, in extra innings. And then they have to face Carlton the next day, and they fall down to Carlton. So it just feels like shit. Beat the Mets, and now we're giving up the ground. I think Sandberg had a huge homer in this game. It's on video. A lot of a lot of 84 games are on video. But the rubber match victory over the Phillies was just really like they were in first to stay. They they came back on Steve Carlton after really looks like things were going to go sideways. Philly had a 3 nothing lead. And, uh, you know, like, hey, this is not your father's cub. It started to sink in. There's two months to go. We just sort of shoved it up the Mets, Heine, but and we just escaped – you know, without our center fielder and leadoff man with, you know, winning a series, but you know, we got a grind ahead of us kids. So I just, I pulled up the box score for this first Phillies game. And what jumped out at me is the Ryan Sandberg's slash line. So this is what, this is July 30th. On July 30th, 1984, Ryan Sandberg was hitting 333 with a 382 on base and a 564 slugging. Wow. And then the guy hitting two spots below him, Leon Durham, was hitting 301 with a 390 on base and a 518 slug. And then Larry Boa was hitting 227 with a 274 on base and a 275 slug. So for all you Nick Madrigal fans, if you ever get in a time machine and you go back, you you can just go wide. If, if you love Nick Madrigal, you can just watch Larry Boa. I yeah, feel right. like Keith Moreland was a high OBP guy. You know, Say had punched. Nope. Jody well, had punched. Well, it's not at that point. 316 from Moreland at that point. Oh, that's too bad. I mean, I was wrong. But, but yeah, remember, nobody cared. Nobody, nobody even knew about Well, how about this? This is the Sarge. This is a weird slash line. <clears throat> 288, 403 on base, 403 slugging. Wow. That's just a quirk of anything, right? Yeah. He got hot late. Like he, he, cured them. His, he did most of his damage in August and September. He had the game-winning RBI in the doubleheader sweep. We'll get to it, but just to throw it out, the doubleheader sweep in September with the Cardinals where they clinched it high and the game-winning RBI 
in Pittsburgh when they clinched. He led the National League in winning RBIs with like 36 or something stupid. And uh, it was also the last year that game-winning RBI was an official stat, but Gary Matthews did lead the National League in game-winning RBIs. Well, let's look quick. While we're on this subject of Gary Matthews Sr., for those of you who didn't know the Gary Matthews Jr., his dad. Both have been discussed on many episodes. Um, got off to a great start, 339, 469, 484. Slumped in May, 247. Still got on base, 370, but a 337 slug. He had mm-hmm. six extra base hits in May. Um, June, he slugged 345, 20 points lower than his on base for June. But then uh, in July, he slugged 459. In August, he slugged 449. And in September, five homers and 20 RBIs, he slugged 529. So yeah. The lights came out. Uh, Sarge was, was there. Slipping his helmet off. He, uh, we should also mention for the record the sort of cult following that he developed, which was, you know, the bleacher bleacher bums throughout the years would some have different relationship with different fans. Like Dick Selma would get him to chant in 69 and stuff. Uh, Matthew, but like 84 was just such a bonkers year and so much fun. But Matt, they took the Matthews one day. He bought them all hats, Sarge hats. And then they would, they started doing this. This became more popular with Andre Dawson. Uh, That's salam. good on the audio podcast. What you're yes, doing? Yes, you know, I'm actually, I'm actually yes. doing my. Uh, He's doing the salam, uh, which I'm the sure is culturally yeah, insensitive. We're not worthy. Way to, yes. yeah. right. It started, I think, with Sar. I, I don't, you know, they had some salute. You know, he had, he was enjoying, uh, and he was in the twilight of but his career. He came Cuff, up. Current Cuff fans, no, I mean they go to they go to games and they throw coffee beans and hair plugs at Ian Happ. <laughs> That's right. That's not any different. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, they, they, after the Philly series, they uh, they take another one from Montreal. They're winning series two or three, and now it's the rematch with the Mets, right? And now for the third time on a Friday afternoon, here's Dwight Gooden and Dick Ruthven once again, kids, because you just you know two times is not enough. And very satisfying uh, Friday afternoon because yeah, the Cubs got Gooden the first time, and then Gooden absolutely got them the next two times. But hey. Let's come back to our play. This is the first time that the Cubs and Mets were playing at Wrigley in what four months? From April to August, March, April, uh, May, June, July. Four months. The Mets do not come. So Gooden comes back. Results are even worse. Cubs beat the shit. It is an absolute rocker. Here he's going nuts. And I said it was a Friday. It was a Monday. My mistake. I apologize. The Monday series. They're coming off the weekend uh, after they beat the Expos. So Gooden gets. Bashed on Monday. You get another doubleheader sweep on Tuesday. Once again, Sucklow, this time Sucklow gets the win. They come back late. So, Tuesday, August 7th, second game of the doubleheader. Pretty sure that's the game in which uh, you might see Keith Moreland gets ejected. Is that, uh, would that be it? I think that's the game that we should probably discuss. I don't know if there's video precisely of this, but Keith Moreland, of course, former Texas Longhorn football player. Um, let's just give it the context now. So, We've already discussed how the Cubs uh, went into New York and really sort of uh, silenced the Mets and closed the gap. And then, you know, teams were jockeying back and forth between first base, uh, first place. Um, a week goes by, and the Cubs now get the Mets at home for some more ass whooping. And they do just that. They beat up good in the first game, they darl in the first game of the doubleheader. And in the second game, they're just beating the shit out of Ed Lynch, future Cubs saboteur as general manager, uh, they are outclassing the Mets. They are beating the shit out of the Mets. I mean, just 
kids, just imagine how fulfilling this is for everybody that lived through 69. We're watching before our eyes the demons just get fucking sliced left and right. And it gets to the point where dumbass Ed Lynch, although he is a tall guy, all right, I'll grant that, but, you know, Keith Moreland was a Division One football player. Let uh, Lynch does a horse shit, you know, basically throws behind uh, Moreland because the Cubs are just pounding everything that the Mets throw up there. And Moreland ain't going to have it. He charges the mound. And um, in a fracas ensues. So that's exciting. Bill Robinson, Mets coach, later on gets into a fight with a fan over the dugout. It's just, it's a carnival atmosphere. After the game, we have to mention this, Andy. Evan remembers Lee Elia's rant that Lee, uh, that uh, the late Les Grobstein recorded. But it was after this game in which Keith Moreland dropped Ed Lynch that uh, um, he was asked a dumb question by Bruce Levine. And uh, at one point he got defensive and Bruce Levine also got defensive and proceeded to tell Mets pitcher and future Cubs GM Ed Lynch that without guys like me, a.k.a. reporters, a.k.a. Bruce, uh, Bruce Levine, without guys like me, you, the ball player, don't have a job. Mm. Kind of spinning the old thing, which is, of course, you know, without ball players, reporters yeah, don't have jobs. And Ed, Lynch, Ed Lynch was absolutely incredulous. Without me, without you, I don't have a job. Without Without you, I don't have a job. Like, just classic. But anyway, we'll we'll give that one to Bruce because it made the Mets look stupid. Made Ed Lynch look, you know, still makes Bruce Bruce look stupid. But anyway, I, I even around this time, I remember watching the just happened to catch the CBS nightly news with Dan Rather, which come out at five thirty, and like there was like a set piece on the Cubs. And I remember they showed Moreland. That was one of the clips. Moreland running to the mound and kicking Ed Lynch's ass. I mean, it was it was bonkers to see this happening before our eyes they had now become a nas- national sensation they finish off the sweep of the mets a god a god day. was it did they finish off a sweep was it a sweep or the mets yeah four game sweep yep. so they beat the mets between chicago and new york one two three seven out of eight games yep and uh you think that and and and, and ever since that point nobody ever mentioned the 69 cubs again right no, never. No, never, I'm never, sorry. It never came. That's, a, that's actually come back stronger than ever. We thought that 84 would have absolutely exercised those demons. But regardless, I don't know if I've done it justice, but the pure level of just euphoria, the satisfaction out of beating the hell out of the Mets over and over again, I don't know. I could relive that the rest of my life. Well, and it's a function of two things. The history between the two teams but also the fact that the Mets were were getting really good and um, they were a threat again. They had been also been, they had been a laughing stock for a long time with the Cubs. I said, yeah, 10 years, both teams were ass. And the Cubs, it was almost one of those things where the Cubs were starting to get good and you looked over and said, oh, why do the fucking Mets right. have to get right. good now? It's supposed to be, can't we just, you know, we got right. others, we've, got, we've already have the Phillies and the Cardinals to worry about. We don't we right. also need the fucking Mets again. Growing up, for us, the five years before this in our nation, you know, like fandom, the Cubs and Mets was always like a freaking slap fight. It was like, you know, couldn't get out of each other's way. And then all of a sudden, they're the team that we have to, like, get past. Yeah. But they did. Yeah, and then those in the 80s, and we've talked about this before, the fact that the Cubs won two division championships – in that loaded NL East is actually pretty impressive. You know, the West, the Dodgers were out there dicking around with every, with, you know, the Giants hadn't really figured it out. The Padres were good for a year. Yep. Um, 
it was pretty much all Dodgers and Astros in the early 80s. Astros were decent, but it was, yeah. Giants were ass until like 87. Late 80s, Giants started to turn around. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a gauntlet. And Cubs were good. And the Mets, they, they were built to last. Like the Mets would be there to stay. The Cubs would retool by 89, as, as we've discussed that. Um, totally different team. Where the Mets were in this every year through 89, basically. Well, and it's funny. So the Cubs get through that. The, not only the four-game sweep of the Mets, but they had beaten the Expos twice before. So they had a six-game winning streak. And now they have to go on a road trip where they got four games in Montreal, three games in Houston, and three games in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. We can't forget that the Reds were in the West. Yeah. Which always made a lot of sense. Um, oh, uh, we, 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 uh, there's, we were just at a game we have to discuss, one of those Montreal games, which would be – uh well Lee Smith got the save, right? It's it was the home game. It was the home so all right, before the Mets before the Cubs oh, yeah. spank, before the Cubs spanked the Mets the second time at home in between when they when they also had to knock off Philly and jump into first place for the last time all year. When they beat the Expos two out of three, they lost the first game, they lost, they won the second game in the rubber match and oh look who the winning pitcher was for that game. Um this is the, the the game. So every game is tense, right? Like every you can't you can't lose any games. And Lee Smith would kind of walk a high wire act a lot of times. It felt like in '84 he was a little bit more dominant. '82 and '83 uh, he got a lot of saves, but he put guys on base. And you know every game is crucial here. Going in, the Cubs are only got a half game lead in first. Mets are winning. Phillies are winning. Holding on, Smith gets two runners on base, I believe, or just one. We should probably look it up here. First and second. But in the rubber match, hoping to take this this next series, Pete Rose, who earlier nope, in the season, nope. uh, so this series was so this this actually happened in the first game of the series. Oh, we got a save in the first and the last game. It have, this happens in the first game. This happens apology. on the what day is this? Thursday, right. August second. So it's not the rubber match. Thank it's, you. Uh, Still a noteworthy game. Bryn Smith against Rick Sutcliffe. So there's a lot at stake there. If if Lee had pissed away the lead um, in the ninth. But yes, everything else um, is the Cubs had a 3-2 to lead going into the top of the ninth. Sutcliffe was going to try to finish it himself. But Tim Wallach got a single. The great Miguel oh, Delone pinch ran for him. Pitcher, right? No. Oh, Miguel Delone, former Cub. Oh, Delone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what he I batted said. like 330 for Cleveland after he left the Cubs in 1980. How fancy. No. Uh, Sutcliffe struck out Daryl Thomas, D E R R E L Thomas. Yep. Uh, Mike Stenhouse pinch hit for uh, Doug Flynn, and he singled, which sent Delaney to third. So first and third, only one out, and little Jimmy Fry and his orthopedic shoes and his. Oh, here's the thing, because just because I'm remembering this. <laughs> So one of the things that's linked to the, the post that goes with this podcast, if you go and look on Pointless Exercise or on Discipio, they're both it's on both places, is a video called A Cubs Win. It's a 1984 season review video. And just look at, there's a bunch of interviews, all from the, you can tell it's the same day because you can see Rick Sutcliffe throwing a bullpen in the background behind Jim. Every time they cut to him, it's Sutcliffe. Either he threw a lot of bullpens that year or they, they did all these interviews one day. It looks like Jim Fry sat on his glasses at some point before the interview because you know, he's got those weird. He's actually got they're kind of hairy, carry-ish. 
yeah. not quite as thick, but they're they're Sally, Jesse, all Raphael. Yeah. And when he's looking, at it, and he's got the transition lenses, so they're always like half sunglasses whenever he's talking to anybody. But if you yeah. look at them, and now that I tell you this, is all you'll see when you look at him. It looks like his glasses are somehow like mushed in in the middle because they're like sticking away from his eyes as they get towards the, the arms sticking yeah. out. <laughs> it's like well, how can you see anything through that? Anyway. So uh, Jim and his weird glass, his broken glasses, and his orthopedic shoes has to go out. And he has to bring, yep. uh, he has yep. to bring in Lee Smith to pitch to with one out, only one out in the ninth. To pitch and the to Pete Rose on third uh-huh. with yeah. runners at Heroes first were, and third. Who, who earlier in the season, and Harry would tell us this when the Cubs were beating Dwight Gooden in the home opener, that New Montreal Expo Pete Rose had collected his four thousandth hit on Friday the thirteenth of the season of April. Uh, Pete Rose, of course, um, had we always it's one of those funny things right we're like for us tom Seaver was a red and pete rose was a philly because when we started watching sports those were the guys like they were legends but we oh tom Seaver had all these years with the mets oh pete rose had all these years with the reds uh but rose was like he was on the team that won philly's first world series championship in 80 they played in the world series in 83 he played like six world series obviously we know about pete rose it was weird that he was an expo but he shows up, and now you're really freaking out because Pete Rose, even at like 44, the guy knows how to hit, especially if he knows a fastball's coming. And uh, so, even at that age, a little nerve wracking here. And, and so, you got Sutcliffe with a winning streak. What was Sutcliffe's record at that point? This was his, this would end up being his 12th win. Yeah. And he ended up, he won 14 in a row to finish the season, right? He was. Yeah, he came over two and four two and one. or something. Yeah, as, as a cut, his his loss was in his third decision, and then he won fourteen in a row after that to go sixteen and one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, so runners are first and third. Uh, the Cubs, uh, first place Cubs, and just always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Pete hits a line drive right back up the middle, and it hits Lee right in his fat ass, nice, and right it harmlessly off. floats up in the air where Dave Owen grabs it and throws to first. And a one-six-three game-ending line-out double play. The, right? the highlight montage at the beginning of this podcast has this highlight in it, and yeah, it's it ironically it's the only time you hear uh, Steve Stone in those highlights, and it's mostly because I all I could find is the only thing I find clips of. I'm too lazy to go through games and try to pull stuff out. I mean, you you get what you're paid for with the podcast. Um, it's all radio stuff except for this. And so you hear Steve yelling, the game's over, the game's over, while the ball is still in the air because Dave's mm-hmm. going to catch it and he's going to have an it. easy yep. double play. And then Harry's mm-hmm. immortal line at the end, which is, the good Lord wants the Cubs to win. It really felt like, hey, they just got into first place. They just beaten the Mets three out of four. Pete Rose normally gets a hit. And, they, you know, like we were waiting for it, right? If you were there in 69, like our friend Forklift was in the bleachers when Willie Stargell hit that homer off of uh, – you know, Phil Reagan on Labor Day and like the winds turn, like you're waiting for that moment, like you said. Instead, you get one of the most bonkers end to a game um, in that double play. And so, and, yeah, and, the, and not the last time Pete Rose, no. oddly enough, will cross paths with the 84 Cubs. No, which is odd considering. It is odd. He will not cross them as, a, as an expo again. No, in fact, that might have been one of his last at bats as an expo. You mean they cut him because he hit Lee Smith in the ass? The guy can't even hit the ball past Lee Smith's fat ass. 
fucker. Get out of here, you weird bull haircut and gambling on the horses so, from the club. So they, I can see you know, they really bolster their position. You know, they're, 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 they're cleaning up on their AL East opponents. They keep taking series. But then, of course, I, met, I referenced earlier what a house of horrors the Astrodome was. And you see where they get swept three there. And so there's another series. You know, that, that shoe can still drop, right? They lose three in a row in Houston. And they go from four and a half up to two and a half. So, hey, man, we got six weeks to go. We can still blow this easily. And now we're going to Friday, August 17th to the shitty Reds. But all, right. all of a sudden, there's okay. a circus sideshow about that. Okay, so this is a perfect segue because I pulled this up. So that was not the last time Pete played, um, not even the last series that Pete played against the Cubs as an expo. He, oh, because when he, they went to Montreal, I think two hundred three. Yes, and he played okay. in the game on August twelfth against the Cubs, pinch hit, and then they—I uh, don't know if it was a waiver trade or they just put him on waivers. And everybody's like, "Fine, the Reds can have Pete back." Well, that—that's what it was. He was engineering it in the back room, yeah. like he wanted to go home to Cincinnati. And I, yeah, frankly, it was a novelty. I was excited because I'm like, "What a player manager!" Like, I remember. Don Kessinger was a player manager of the White Sox when I first started watching baseball, but Cubs, that seems like an old Cubs radio thing. analyst, Lou Boudreau, was a famous player Correct. manager. Correct. Same year he won MVP in 48. So here's an odd quirk of the schedule. So between August 2nd and August 19th, Pete played in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 games. And he played in eight of them against the Cubs. <laughs> He played in uh, five of them with the Expos, and then his first series with the Reds was against the Cubs, starting on the 17th. And now he's in the starting lineup because he's the he's playing for the Reds. He's well, not pitching I, anymore. And he was going to take a back seat, but then he put himself in the lineup that whole weekend. So, so again, like kind of a distraction, kind of exciting and weird and historic. And like here, Pete Rose, like I said, we never saw him play for the Reds. We were too young. We thought he was a Philly. Oh, yeah, that's where he made his mark. And now blah, blah, blah. Harry and Steve would tell us how the connection between Jim Fry and Don Zimmer, they all grew up in Cincinnati. You know, we're in Cincinnati. Uh, but it was a little bit of a distraction. Mario Soto still on top of his game, probably cooled down after forcing Zimmer to vomit on the field. He's on the hill again. Once again, it's a big game, and Dick Ruthven's got to go out there for the Cubs. Yep. And uh, I Rose had a big hit. I put this game's on YouTube. Rose, of course, had a big hit. Nice, clean uh, single to, to start the scoring. Uh, and, again, we need to win games. It's, kind of, it's almost like in 98 when the Cubs were striving to make the playoffs and the home run chase was a little bit of a distraction. It was like shit like this was like, oh, and it kind of seemed to give the shitty Reds momentum. And, you know, and the Cubs lose their fourth in a row and they're still a game and a half up and this and that. But, again, you got Rick Sutcliffe going, although he didn't apparently have his best outing. Because so, how about this? In, the, in the opener, Pete puts himself in the lineup and bats himself second. He's like, yeah, I do whatever I want. This was his slash line after the game: two sixty-two, three thirty-seven. Not bad. His slugging was three oh one. It's like Rio Ordonez. He's trying to mix in a double once in a while, Pete. Jesus. <laughs> He did have a double in this game, I believe. No, well, there you go. That, put his, that put his slugging up to 301. So that apparently was, that he was, was slugging under 300 for the Expos. And, you know, and it had to be iconic because he did a head first slide. Because it was like he, he did one of those. He sliced a nice line drive to left center, right? So it was tailing away from Dernier. And, and he rounded first, and he did a, his, his patented head first slide. And it was like 
I don't remember. I remember watching the game. But I can. I was probably sick to my stomach. It's like ah, like you know, that must be a bad omen. But no, they came back the next day with Sutcliffe, even though they Sutcliffe must have given up a lot of runs to, to stop the bleeding. But then they were about to lose the rubber match on Sunday when. Well, when Thad Bosley, former White Sox, yeah. who had found himself on the 84 Cubs, and, you know, Richie Hebner, had to get a Richie Hebner name drop, longtime Cub killer apparently in the 70s as a third baseman for the Pirates, was basically the Cubs' top pitch hitter yep. in 84. But Bosley started becoming that guy, and it all started on the Sunday, and there was a story told years later, Thad Bosley had his bags packed. He was ready to leave that day, apparently. He hadn't batted in several weeks, blah, blah, blah. And in that game, uh, you know, the Sunday game, at some point in the game, the Cubs were losing, and he comes off the bench and hits a three-run homer to tie the game, or, or he put him up with a three-run homer. Um, but, yeah, the, the nice little feel-good story was that that meant that Thad Bosley got to stay. So, Cub fans from this time. He had a three-run homer off of Jeff Russell, and he scored Jody Davis and Larry Boa. How did Larry get on? Did somebody hit him in the head? <laughs> no, he, uh, he reached on the ground out to second. Fielder's choice. That was how. That was the only way Larry ever got on base. Yep. Um, oh, here, I got a couple of uh, defensive, uh, I don't know why I just worked this in now. So the uh, the 84 Cubs had the... Uh, Oh, I know what it's from. On the video, Sutcliffe talks about why he's having so he, they're interviewing during the season. He's talking about why he's having so much more success with the Cubs than he was with the Indians. Right. And he's basically saying, you know, I'm not really pitching a lot different, um, you know, but I am. Uh, I'm on a better team, and I'm a, a team with a better defense. And he's, I'm thinking, man, how bad was the Indians' defense? Because right. you have Outside. some really good defensive players on the Cubs. You have you uh, do three Danberg Dernier, yes, and, and Jody. It yeah. ones in the battery, yeah. And then, uh, other than the you know, people, I think will always think of Leon with the Turn ball. No, he's good so first he was a good first baseman. So he was. He had four guys, but you had, you also had some abysmal. Like Moreland in right field was basically, yeah. you know, and, and Matthews. Matthews, and Matthews was the original catch twenty two. If you hit fifty balls to him, he catches twenty two. Yeah. And then on the left side of the infield, you had statues, tiny statues, even not even I, big statues. Larry Bowe and re- Ron Say. I referenced the rubber match of that Philly series in early August when Henry Cotto played for Denier. The third game is on YouTube. Watch it because early on, like Von Hayes, a few guys hit like hard hit balls to the left side. <laughs> and like by the time Bo, like, like Bo and Say have so much time to get over because the ball just died. Like that was not a myth. They talked about it. That was not overblown. And I hate to bring too much attention to it because then you could you know, use that to diminish Sandberg. But that's the. Uh, uh, no, and Sandberg didn't need the help. Well, no, Those guys Sandberg on the left side a, did. And then Sandberg was a great defensive second baseman long after they were actually mowing the grass. Correct. The but they were not mowing and I also the grass. obvious because you know, And you know damn well that the left side of the infield was a lot higher than the right side of the infield was. Probably. Probably because, yeah. Because you're not going to penalize the two guys who can field, and they're going to help your your pitching staff right, get out. Because you could kill some balls that they would not have trouble with otherwise. Right. Uh, they were both like 38, right? Yeah. Bo was definitely they were old. They were tiny. So like this year, the Cubs are having, if you want to, you could, you can, you can do this. This exercise, you can do it at your own house. So if you want to see how big Larry Bo and Ron Say were, the Cubs are giving out bobbleheads of the statues. So you can get a, you're going to get a bobblehead of the Billy Williams statue and the Ernie Banks statue and the, um, yeah, what are you, all the other, Fergie and Ronnie and Harry. 
if you take two of the bobblehead statues and you go out in your backyard and you put them, I don't know, um, 22 feet apart, and then just then just back up, that's what it was like having Larry and say playing. Stand, pretend you're standing on the mound. Look over your shoulder and go. Are they even there? But here's here's why I brought them up. In 1984, Ron Say came within three games of breaking the all-time errorless record in a season for third baseman. Not Cubs record. Major League Baseball record. He went wow. 60 games without an error. I have a feeling he probably had like three putouts. And at the time, <laughs> in 1984, Larry Boa was still had the highest fielding percentage of any shortstop ever in the history of Major League baseball the guy with the highest fielding percentage was larry boa and so if you want to f- see just how uh useless errorless streaks <laughs> and fielding percentages there's your good example and i say that knowing that one of my favorite things was the fact that ryan sandberg once went an entire 162 game span without a throwing error uh a guy who played second base, who made half his, well, not half, but probably a third of his throws, starting with his back to the first baseman, never threw the ball mm-hmm. away. That, to me, is really impressive. Yeah. Larry Boa getting to, like, three balls a game and mm-hmm. not, you know, putting probably putting most of them in his pocket. Oh, I can't make that throw. That I'm going to say, I'm going to say to Boa's, def- Boa's defense, most of that must have been built on years in Philadelphia and playing mm-hmm. on turf. He, must, he obviously had to be a good yeah, choice. I mean, we know that Larry good. was... Um. He, he was a he was a shortstop of the seventies and eighties where he wasn't expected to get at all. And he was a quick little guy, and I'm sure he was I'm sure he was a good defensive shortstop at for a, for a long time. Yeah. But by the time he got no. to the Cubs, he was not good at anything really. He was just kind of he was he was our gutty little field general who he was like the captain. Yeah, who there's a reason why we do this. We're doing this podcast about the 1984 Cubs. Dave Owen comes up like three or four times, and Larry doesn't. Because at the end of games, Dave was the one who was actually on the field, not Larry. He also been had pinch hit for. on that roster. He couldn't yeah. pinch hit. He got pinch hit for because he couldn't no. hit. No, or they took him out to put an adult size shortstop in late mm-hmm. in the game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they didn't need him out there for defense late. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so we, you know we get through like some of those bumps, the Pete Rose series. Now we're getting in late August. Cubs are holding on. The, 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 the lead gets up to five, five and a half, looking pretty good, right? So um, nothing really stands out. They go through the NOS, but now there's one more series in New York. It's really kind of a chance. Friday, September seventh. This season cannot end without at least one more Dwight Gooden, Dick Ruth, and Matt. <laughs> And Gooden just outdoes himself. I see the scores 10 0. Yeah. It kind of didn't matter though, because the Cubs are up seven going into the season. So now that they got the Mets backs to the wall, it's kind of nice in a way. So let Gooden have his game. I think he had a one hitter. Um, and unlike the other times where even though Ruthven was overmatched, he actually pitched admirably. He pitched like Dick Ruthven on this game. And so Gooden chalks up another, you know, he goes three and two against the Cubs. And by the way, uh, when the Cubs pinned Gooden's ears back in Wrigley in uh, just a month earlier, they would not then uh, beat him again for like literally like five years. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> it's like, yeah. it wasn't. You, you talk about Aaron Rodgers. It wasn't Randy Johnson bad, who they no. never beat. 
it was worse because Johnson was just, was just spread out over his whole career. And he, yeah. he, and it comes out. Gooden was like, they had to face that motherfucker like five, six times a year, and he beat him. I mean, it was just – the Cubs had to pay the price for beating his ass twice in 85. That's kind of how I looked at it. Gooden was one of the best pitchers <laughs> in the game. It was still worth it. And he was especially – it was worth it, damn it. And so he gets that game on Friday. They close within six. So there's still like a little bit of a – you know, we got that psyche, right? You can't blame us. It's all it's festering in the house. They're 69. They're down to six. Who do we have going on Saturday, though? Rick Sutcliffe. What does he do? That was another fucking shutout. Four-hit shutout with 12 strikeouts and no walks. In your face, New York. And that was it. That was the effective clincher, I feel like, especially looking at it now. They put him back up seven. They even let the Mets take a series for the first time since May. You know, they take two up, but the Cubs got the one game that they really needed there. Um, I went to one more game, and it was Saturday, September 15th. Got to talk about this game, a little bit iconic. And, you know, I've been going to the bleachers since I was a kid. Said it before, like my dad, you know, it's the cheapest way to take out the whole family. My brother was – he was going to school in the city, but he went. He didn't start school till October. So he was still home, and he's telling me, I'm in sixth – I'm now starting seventh grade. He's like, we're going to go to that Cubs game Saturday. We're going to sit in the bleachers. So I'm all excited about it, like, for two weeks. And I'm nervous. I'm like, it's going to be crazy. Like, you know, we're in September now. The Cubs are closing in on something that is just really unprecedented, right? It's been 39 years. And I'm, like, bugging my brother. And he's been going to the bleachers since, you know, the 60s. And I'm just like – I'm anxious, but sure enough, you know, we, we didn't have to get there super early, uh, but we got there early. We're in line. We're waiting for the gates to open because they did not sell bleacher tickets ahead of time until after this day. Um, you didn't have to get there that early. You could because we would go with my dad when he got there early. Just, you know, you go in the, you know, the game starts, you sit, you know, 15th row. But we got there early enough to get a ticket and be in about the third or fourth row in right field. A couple things I remember about this day is number one, uh, I went to use the washroom and I came back and my brother was laughing because he said that the Mets were taking batting practice and they would throw, they threw a ball into the stands and that the fans got on this one fan and they would throw that ball back. And I'm like, really? I'm like, what do you do? And my brother was like, he threw it back. I'm like, really? I'm like, what would you do? He's like, would you have kept it? He's like, fuck yeah, I would have kept it. What are you, crazy? <laughs> but that happened, and then other guys started throwing it back, and it got to the point where the Mets were starting to wear batting helmets. Right? I'm just like, we're going out of our mind, right? This is unprecedented. The fan, we're feeling it. We're, we, you know, we've got a lot of angst that we're getting off of our shoulders. And I, I'm not even saying I participated in it, but this is the mentality that some of the Mets had to wear helmets. So I, I only cite this because I don't know what the real history is of the tradition of throwing real home run balls that happened in games back. The idea of throwing any ball back was kind of unheard of in 1984. Just judging by my brother's reaction, it was like he couldn't believe that this guy let people bully him into throwing the ball back. But at least I can say that I know of no other incidents earlier than that where that tradition sort of morphed into – an opposing, and it's fine. Like if I, I've never caught a live ball. If I catch an opposing home, I don't know. Maybe by now, I guess I would be compelled to throw it back. But kind of unheard of then. That started. The other thing that started, that or at least in my knowledge, started, and this was something that, on something that happened during a game of the week five years later, made me so angry that caused me to write a letter to the editors of the Sporting News, <laughs> when in 1988, Joe Garagiola covering a New York Mets game and fans were chanting Darrow said. The Daryl chant, which started in the 1986 World Series against Boston. No. I was like, bullshit. I was there September, uh, whatever it was, September 15th, 1984, when 
Everyone started, and they may have done it that whole weekend. They may have done it early. They may have done it the year before. Strawberry was the defending rookie of the year. He was hot shit. He was a scary, awesome player before you know he self-destructed. He was kind of at his peak. He yeah. was the defending rookie of the year. Gooden would be that season's rookie of the year. And then like we said the Mets were a team on the rise. Strawberry, he had, he had a three-homer game against the Cubs in a meaningless game the year before in September, and he was just – you know, and so of course you heckle the superstar, and that was the chant. And so I remember having a lot of fun that day. Uh, and then the Cubs won, and like at this point now, it's like it's it's kind of a matter of time before we clinch. It's kind of a weird feeling. Um, and actually, this was the Sunday. I think it was no, yeah, it was the Saturday game. It was towel day. Hmm. And what I remember about this was Mark this Pryor one, there. Was, Mark Pryor was not there, nor was Larry Ross warming up in the bullpen with his towel. But when Lee was Smith was yet? closing the game out. Everybody was waving yeah, the boy. towels when Lee Smith was closing oh, yeah. out the game, and the umpires had to keep stopping. Okay, they're white because, towels. Yes, of course, and uh, and it became. But still, what's part the, of batter's, the, uh, the the batter size there for a reason? That's the batter size, right? It, it became part of like the footage when you'd play nineteen the next year, right? Like they'd show the clip of Lee Smith going set, and like everyone's waving their towel. It was just like for me to be 12 years old, like so privileged, just like you to have gone to so many games that year. I went to four games in like a like an 11 day period in June. Went to a couple others with my dad. I'm here in September. This unprecedented thing. Remember too, right? Like Chicago sports was a goddamn wasteland. Like, just do you think? Do you think Al had in his journal was keeping track of of the Cubs records when they had his lucky towel? Probably Dear started diary. Me too. Another tradition. Dear diary, got a towel at the Cub game today, and they won. Um, but you know, like we knew, like the Hawks went to the Cup final in seventy-one, seventy-three. The Bulls, when they were in the old Western Conference, made the Conference Finals in seventy-five. But Jerry that's Sloan, yeah, Chet right. Walker, and, and, Bob Love, and Bo- Tom Borwinkle. But like, first of all, the Bulls and the Hawks always ranked behind the baseball and football teams. Right between nineteen sixty three and eighty three, it was a fucking wasteland in this town. Right between the Bears championship and all of a sudden the White Sox in eighty three out of the blue win, and I remember being so jealous and just despondent. And then it just totally happened. Yeah, it was a golden, a golden era of sports right, in Chicago, followed started. by an actual dynasty with a championship. Yeah. And then the, the Bulls were sure. I mean, the world changed. Well, I mean, even in eighty four, you had. The White Sox were the defending AL West champions. They did what the White Sox do. They went right back to irrelevance. That was fun. Yep. Cubs win the division. The Bulls draft the, Michael Jordan. Yep. The Bears actually win a the playoff game. For the yep. Yeah. And yeah, then no, start we, off, and we already knew that the Bears were super fun. Yeah, you know, like that was we knew there was yep. something there. Absolutely. And then the Blackhawks were doing whatever. They're skating around whatever the fuck the Blackhawks were doing. So, yeah, so we're in the bleachers. It was a weird, unpre- I'm only 12, but even then I was like, like nobody around. Like, it was just a, that, look, at that point, uh, divisional play had been around 15 years. The longest drought by any team, like, the old measure was World Series, but the distance between playoff appearances was actually the White Sox between 1919 and 59. Cubs have gone 39 years. It, it, longer streaks have come and gone since then. Um but it was just, uh, it was just extraordinary. So that Saturday felt like a coronation. We're waving the towels. They lose the next day. Who cares? The Mets are done. Cubs are bait and have. And then what happens? Just when you think you're done, like the hand comes out of the water, like in Deliverance, things would be complete. The Cubs actually endure what would become their longest losing streak of the season, just to make things a little bit interesting. 
But I, I think they really had built up too much cushion. But still, one more panic. Can't live without right. it. Remember in uh, fucking, fucking Pirates, 2016, the best cup team we've ever seen. And went five and fifteen at one point. Yeah, they go th- and and they they still have like an eight game lead, and fans are yeah. literally just shitting yeah. themselves. Like yeah. here it comes. They're bad. That again. was a little unprecedented because most so, teams somehow were... the t- somehow the 2016 Cubs had a must win game against the Pirates the, the day the before John the All Star break. Sunday? Yes, yes. And it, all it was, was it, and it, it was only must win for like our mental health. That was the was. only reason they needed to win it because it was not. It was standing they were so they were far fine. out in front. But that team was unprecedented because normally teams that win 100 games will like usually win like eight out of 12, but then they'll also have like three or four where they lose like five out of eight. The Cubs didn't really have any five. out; They just had a 15 out of 20. And then they were like the 84 Tigers practically the rest of the way. So, um, yeah, but anyway, five. So they lose three in a row to Pittsburgh at home. Like <laughs> Sutcliffe almost loses the game. They well, go and, to and part Lewis. of it, part of the angst was fans who just wanted them. Clinch it. Yeah. Just clinch it. It's, we, when right. these, you know, they've got they ten days still, but they, they want to see it at home, right? Oh yeah. So yeah. Like, just I don't win know. These games. Yeah. Then they lose. They lose the last game to the Mets. Yeah. Then they lose to the Pirates. Now you know and they can't clinch away. at home. They're not going to. But they still home, lose, yeah. and then they lose again, and then they go to St. Louis, and they lose, yeah. and then the Cubs. Kirk are like, Kepshire right, shuts him down. And that. So Kirk Kepshire, and he also had a, a big win against him during the 13 game losing streak the next year. Somehow they'd run into Kirk Kepshire on a Friday night. Yeah, you can't. And now the. The losing streaks at five. Saturday gets rained out, and they needed it. And then Sunday, I remember they had like Jack Brickhouse in the booth. They had Lou Boudreau. In those. They they kind of felt like, all right, this bullshit's over, even though they hadn't won in a week. Hey, hey. And sure enough, like Matthews, I think just took over both games. They sweep the Cardinals. They clinch a tie. And then after not even a day off, the very next day, uh, Pittsburgh. So that was it. So yeah, basically the five game losing streak was immediately followed by clinching a tie and then clinching a win and uh over the course of three days and there you have it it actually happened so one thing we want to talk about with this was harry 1984 harry is still really good harry like you heard a bunch of clips at the beginning of this podcast and anything you hear he is you you understand when you hear him he's cracking every place he'd ever been Loved having Harry as their announcer. He's a homer, but he's a really good baseball. It's, it's infectious. It feels like a carnival. Like there's so many games in '84 on YouTube. He's just crackling. He's like just constantly talking, but not talking like Chip Carey. He's just like he's just cracker day. He's just saying like you know uh, you know Glenn Gorman has driven in from Oak Park tonight to see the company. Like he's just rattling off names left and right. This group comes in from Illinois State. They drove up from Bloomington last night. <laughs> hey Arnie, he's just like he. He talks so much, you really wonder when he's drinking. Like, how how can you stay this drunk if you're just going to talk all the time? Are you? Maybe he was doing the like uh, <laughs> the um, Stevie Nicks thing, where I don't know. Did he have Steve like blowing Budweiser into his ass Alcohol. during game? Steve, I'm not going to be able to stop talking. You're just going to have to use the straw again. Oh, and a few kids at home. If your your broadcaster announcer wants you to blow Budweiser up his ass, the first say no the first time because it starts a vicious circle. Anyway, so Harry's really good, and then we get to the moment we've all been waiting for. The Cubs are in. Cubs are at Pittsburgh. Rick Sutcliffe is shoving it up the Pirates. The Cubs score three runs relatively early, but cruise into this win. Harry is talking about. He gets to the 
or Joe Orselek has two strikes on him. Harry's talking about all oh, you people at home. You ought to come. Yep. You know, this. The fans and then the, the stands, 39 and years then of waiting. Strike three happens, and Harry is clearly not looking. He yeah. has no Let's fucking see. idea that the game's over, and he, like, grunts. There's like this, ugh. Right. And they right. start telling, right. the Cubs are the champions. The Cubs are yes. the champions. Yeah, like, no, Harry, you had moment. one moment to get ready for yes. the whole season, and you missed it. Yeah. Now, I know. Have, I'm sure that, especially under Tribune ownership, I'm sure there were, like, 12 assholes in the booth who shouldn't have been there. Who just True. because they own the team and they own GN, they can be up there. And there's people. It's distracting. And Harry looks down for a minute, and looks up, and it's like, oh crap, it's over. Could be. But the, the funny thing is, when the Cubs clinch in '89 in Same Montreal, Montreal, another yeah. nondescript stadium with half a fan. That's exactly all Cubs fans. Empty, and it's all Cub fans. He but he he misses that one too. He missed it again. He did. Yeah, Harry. Oh well. Yeah, and at his finest moment, I'm sure Milo was all fucking over it. On the radio, yeah. no, that was, it should have been Vince, right? Uh, it would have been Milo, and I guess Vince only in the middle. I guess I, I'm not sure. Yeah, we've talked about it before. I'm not exactly sure how that played out. I don't know what the GN radio rotation was. Yeah, just that Harry would switch with Milo, and so it is funny yeah, though. I, I'm sure this was because of my dad. I don't think I came to this on my own, but as a kid, I never, I never cared for Milo. We didn't either. I just thought Milo seemed like a prick. There's something about him, and I loved Vince. I loved Vince and yes. Lou. That to me, that was the Cub Radio. That's game. the soundtrack. Well, that's the soundtrack because oftentimes, although like I said, we were kids, we, we had access to games on TV. But whenever you're out and about, especially with your dad, like doing like well, the game's on. The farm, on we had the no matter what we were doing outside, the the radio was games on. on. Yeah. yeah, Vince and Lou. So we heard far more games than I saw that year because yeah. you know he had me out wandering around doing shit. Sure, um, you had to, you know, you had to hear Pete Rose's line drive described. Yeah. Slapping off a lease. Yeah. Hit his big fat ass. That that my Lou? Fuck that guy. That's what Lou. Nah. That's what I remember. I remember Lou Boudreaux's call that with Vince. Vince. I hit him in the fat ass and Lou's like, yeah, yeah fuck, fuck that, that guy. guy. I never liked Pete Rhodes. He's an ass. Right. Like, all He's right. a dick. All right, Lou, we're on. We have to bleep all that. <laughs> but so as a kid, I remember thinking that um, Lou Boudreaux and Vince Lloyd were like a great radio team. Like I was convinced of that because you're a kid. You don't know different. But honestly, I think I was right. I really do I, think they were really I good. I think, like I said, I, we talked about a pregame. Lou Boudreaux was kind of like, you know, people give Steve Stone credit or like Jim Deshade. I love Jim Deshade. Lou Boudreaux was a very adroit, uh, articulate, eloquent, uh, smart. He brought, he made the game bite size. He'd make predictions. Like he knew the game and he did his homework. And I felt, and usually it was because I was too young to really appreciate it. I could just kind of tell the reaction of, the elders in like the family, like my dad, like they always sort of thought of Lou positively. He really was good at sort of keeping things informed. Yeah. Yeah. Vince had the cool voice. You did. And they were just really good together. And then, um, I mean, in my mind, the way it worked, I, I never, you're right. I don't know where Milo fit in. Yeah. Um, now we know we told the story before on a previous podcast about how when Jack retired, Milo was super excited, right? I mean, he came to the Cubs. He signed, re-signed and signed a new deal with the Cubs. He was going to take over for Jack. 81. Yep, two years and then take over. And then they basically announced at the same time they're they're thanking Jack, congratulating him, they're ushering in Harry Carey, which just yeah. pissed Milo off to no end. So I don't know how the – in my mind, I can't think back to how the rotation worked because, like, for a regular game, in my mind, it was – Vince and Lou did the first three with Harry, Harry and Steve on TV. Then yep. the middle three was Harry and Lou. 
Yep. And then Milo doing the middle three on TV. And then the end was, but it, it couldn't have been that way. There's no way Milo only worked three innings. There's, he, right. there's no way he would have let that. Well, and the other thing is I remember Lou coming over on TV sometimes too. But that was maybe before, I don't. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, that was when Steve was selling, he was busy having to sell a prearranged funeral. Oh, I heard about that. Well, Stoney, came, I think in the 82 season, they didn't have Stone. Harry came in 82, Stone came in 83. Yeah. But, like, Harry didn't replace – he replaced Jack, but there – but they didn't ex- – yeah, it, it was weird. You're right, because Milo was hired to replace Jack, supposedly. So I don't know what other broadcasters they had, but it, it generally was, though. Harry – like you said, Harry would be in the radio in the middle three innings, and uh, and then if the game wasn't on TV, then he was the primary guy. Yep. Yeah, Harry did every inning. He weren't getting – you weren't – no. Harry was working no matter how long the game went. Yep, he wasn't taking anything. He wasn't taking a dump even, in the fifth inning. Like even uh, even the playoff games. <laughs> Actually, Harry probably was taking a dump in the fifth inning. He's had the mic with him. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, he just had uh, <laughs> a bucket. Yeah, had a mic with him. <laughs> oh God, what are you doing? Steve, so, so was Harry that a strike? Did, right. You know what's funny? Right. Harry did do cup playoff games. So we go to the playoffs, and now you know the city's bonkers. Do you remember who broadcast the games on ABC? Yeah, it was uh, Keith Jackson. On ABC? Yep. I thought it was Earl may Weaver. Have done, yeah, Earl Weaver was in the booth. Yeah. I thought it was Earl Weaver, Keith Jackson. Nope. Okay, who was it? Don Drysdale. Oh, okay. And, right. and Reggie, ja- and Reggie yeah, Jackson. And Reggie Jackson. He was still, okay. he was still yep. playing. So Drysdale right. had become, Drysdale in a sense had replaced Terry Carey. He was a White Sox announcer that had come over with Sports Vision. Him and Hawk Harrelson and early win. Like they had a whole new thing. They got rid of Harry, Jimmy Pearsall, and whatever. And Drysdale did Sox games on Sports Vision, but he was still connected to ABC to the point where he was there. You know, Keith Jackson must have been doing the Royals Tiger series. All I remember though is that uh, we were outraged at uh, how much we were all convinced in Chicago how much the announcers hated the Cubs. Yeah. And that it was, it was even brought up on Channel 7 News that all the mail they were getting. Which is just funny. It just kind of speaks to uh, us being kind of goofs, probably, I think. Like, yeah, and the real reason, I'm sure. I'm, I have a feeling had the series only been two games long, no one would have thought that. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. But you get you go to San Diego, you know, you go to San Diego, and then the first game goes poorly. They get blown out, basically. Yeah. And then, and we then know there will happened. be tomorrow. We'll get, we can get to this shit, I guess. We have to go through. It's 1984. We have to get oh. through. But I just have oh. a feeling then everything, because the, the walls were, fall, were crumbling down around us. Yes. Take it out on the announcers. announcers make it worse. Yeah. Somehow I and thought Reggie's, they were Reggie's an asshole. Yeah. One of the things I learned from the Bo Jackson book that Jeff Perlman wrote was the first time Bo Jackson met Reggie Jackson. Okay. Bo wanted to kick his ass. He just he thought Reggie was the biggest asshole he'd ever met. And I he just wanted that. to Reggie's kick his ass. It. And it just made me yeah. love Bo that much more. Yeah, I can see Reggie. I can see Reggie rubbing through the wrong way. He's got the air about him. He was basically Reggie was basically comparing the two of them as athletes. You know, great yeah, athletes Reggie, like us. And Bo's Reggie was Reggie not even like, Reggie was not even a great all around baseball. No, he couldn't, maybe he couldn't he was younger. Shit. Maybe he was younger. I think maybe he was a decent outfielder for Oakland. Maybe the, I don't know when he was an Oriole. Did he have a cannon? Yeah, the one year he was the ball. He was an Oriole. Um. Yeah, you know what's funny is that I stayed home from school. On opening day and what could have been a meaningless season, and yet I did not stay home from school in the playoffs. And I think the only reason was is because it would have been obvious 
why I was staying home from school, but like my mom would have called in for him. My yeah. sister got home. Like, he's got, I don't know. He's got I, cup fever. It's okay. I had the VHS. I got, I got all these games on tape, but I remember my mom picked me up and she's like, no, here's, right, here's what I remember. There were some cool teachers at lively junior high that would wheel in goddamn television or, or a radio or a yeah, radio. Our, our teacher, Mr. Letcher listened both days had the, we listened to the game on the radio. I had, on the other hand, Mr. Anderson, who was just a stale, old, crusty math teacher. He liked sports. He claimed he liked sports, but he was there to teach math, right? And so, you know, the game starts at, like, what, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. And so school ends at 2.40. We're going to see most of the game, but, like, you know, I'd rather see all of it or hear all of it. And so we're in math. And all the way at the other end of the hall is young Mr. Khan in science. You know, good looking Mr. Khan. He's the basketball coach. You know, everyone loved, loved Mr. Khan. And of course, Mr. Khan brings the radio. I think it was a radio. I don't think it was a TV, whatever. Some live communication of the game is all the way at the other end of the hall. So obviously, everyone that's listening to this knows what happens in the first game. Suckcliffe, I don't know what he does on the top of the first. Bobby fucking Dernier in the first Cubs postseason at bat in 39 years hits a home run, right? And then two, and then two batters later, Gary Matthews hits a home run. I'll never forget that because I remember exactly. You know, it's almost like the Kennedy assassination. Because I'm like sitting here, and you just hear an eruption. <laughs> All right, and you're dying because you're like, you're such a dick, Mr. Anderson. You're right, and fucking polynomials on the board, and I don't know what's going on. It's got to be good. And then like two minutes later, you hear another chair because Matthews hits a homer, and like by the time my mom picked me up, she's like, even the pitcher hit a homer. I'm like, what? Rick Sucklehorn. But I remember, like, when the class ended, the bell hits. We're, like, running down the hall towards the – and they're running out with the news. Like, hey, Bob, did you hit a homer? You know, we're just like, tell me what happened. You so know? you're basically – you're equating in American history John F. Kennedy being – having his that top of his head blown off right. with Eric Shaw yeah. giving up two homers That's to the first three batters. Right. That's, I think I, I am on board. I, I agree. It's it's before, we get to the, before we get to the playoffs, because it's t- probably time to talk about the playoffs, I, I, I didn't realize this until I just looked. Do you know how the 1984 regular season ended and how it's a, kind I, of a perfect encapsulation of the Cubs are playing the Cardinals? And it's kind of a perfect little bow on the regular season. I see from the box score they beat Suter. They walked up. Bruce Suter blew a lead in the ninth inning of the final game of the season. The Cubs were down wow. one nothing, And this ragtag group, Henry Cotto singled. Dan Roan singled. Our Thad man. Bosley singled, which scored Henry to tie the game. Tied the game up. Uh, then Gary Woods walked. And Keith Moreland had a uh, RBI ground. No, he didn't get an RBI. It's, so here's what happened. I see if you can figure this out. Moreland grounds to third. There's a force out at home. Okay, I didn't figure it out. So they force out. Dan Rohn's forced out at home. They must have tried. They did. They tried to get a double play. They threw the ball away. And that's how the game ends? So then uh, Bosley scored to win the game. So Bruce Suter put uh, a save on the final day of the, of you the season. You know what Bruce Suter had, had, it, had at stake for that save? Oh, probably some kind of bonus, right? What would have been the new all-time major league record for saves in a season? Oh, that's too bad. Tied Dan Quisenberry. I, I want to. It's been broken since then. I think Bobby Thigpen might still have the record, but uh, Suter did actually set the National League record for saves in 1984-45, I believe. Yeah, and that was his um, eighth blown save. And he had two against the Cubs. So either one of those would have given him the major league mark. Instead, he had to settle for a tie with Quisenberry. 
until I'm pretty sure that record stood until uh, Thigpen uh, blew it in nineteen ninety six years later. But uh, I, re- I I did not see that game because I was watching. Uh, and then we mentioned this when we did a Bears Cowboys. Remember this crap? But I was in attendance when once again the Dallas Cowboys beat the Bears. Oh, yes. Uh, soldier for, for the last time in a, in a while. Um, and I just remember like hearing the end of the Cubs game and then the Cubs all came out and paraded around the field and waved high to the fans and said, thanks. So the, so the Cubs were in the playoffs for the first time uh, since 1945 when they lost the world series to the Tigers and they break out all the stops for the opener. So the first playoff game at Wrigley, Ernie Banks threw out the first pitch in full uniform. Oh, the Ronnie Woo Woo style. Yeah, they may have been Ronnie, honestly. I saw that and was like, hmm. You go going Bob Feller, put the whole uniform on. You think he went and sat in stands then in full uniform? I mean, in case they want to activate me for the game, I'm ready. Like, okay, all right, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, do you know who sang the national anthem and why? I do because we discussed it because I thought he only did it in 89. He did it in 84 and 89. It was Jimmy Buffett. Yep. Who was personal friend of Steve Goodman? Who had who, died on uh, who September, had just died September twentieth. Yeah, because Steve Goodman, of course, who wrote City of New Orleans and uh, you know a few other. Uh, uh, why don't we get drunk and screw that David Allen Coe made famous? Uh, local guy, I think Niles North, um, been on the scene, was going to Cubs games in the sixties. He had had cancer for like ten years. He wrote Dying Cub Fans Last Request, which pissed off Dallas Green. And in response, as an act of good faith, he wrote Go Cubs Go, which in 1984 replaced the Let's Go, bump, 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 batters up. Bump, bump. That used to be the radio. We're taking the yeah. afternoon off. It's that it. used to be the intro to WGN. The, a superior, the standard, a superior song. And we've talked about standard, how a lot of people are convinced that Go Cubs Go is intentionally shitty. Campy. Yeah. Because he's yeah. like, okay, fine. Fine. You want me Steve to write a positive Goodman song? I'll fucking is a, do it. Here Steve you go. Goodman is Deal a, with this piece of shit. And now we still a, we still hear it. Like this a, year, they played right. every Cub win at, at Wrigley. Right. We'll hear it like 12 times. Steve Goodman, thank you. He's a posthumously Grammy Award winning artist, well respected in the you know the folk uh, writing. And do you think someday uh, the Cubs will put him in the utility tunnel of fame? You know what? They fucking should. They should. Honestly. He should have been in the first. He should have been when they first did it. I didn't think about that. Uh, he'll have to settle for that post office. He's got to uh, wait for Jeff Southport Garland to go in before he can go. Jesus Christ. Yeah, a really sad story, too, because he died young. He wasn't even, like, 40. And he died in 84. He wrote Go Cubs Go. It he died just a few days the... before the clincher. He didn't even get to see the clincher. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, kind of, a, kind of a tough deal, but immortalized in Go Cubs Go, which, again, I think you're right. He did that out of, out of irony more than anything else. And, and 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 the other funny thing was on television. The intro was 1984 uh, Van Halen's um, "Jump" from the 1984 album, and that was also the song that they played. That even though they always had an organist, didn't they also play it at the park when they would take the field? Yes, and they did it forever. Yeah, yeah. For and they would bring it back to the kind of dorm and bring it back. So, yeah, a couple soundtracks uh, for 1984 for you. Yeah, as a treat to the fans, I played the entire two-minute. Um, intro to yep. WGN games that year at the yep. top of this podcast right before um, my, my so it's the, intro. It's the jump intro then Milo the talking about the Milo talks right over, over it. Eddie, over Eddie playing it's two minutes long because he's also they also work in the uh, the MLB disclaimer so that Harry didn't have to read it on the air during games. Do they not read the disclaimer anymore? <sighs> I don't know 
if they do or they, nobody does it live anymore. I don't even know if they bothered it. Used to, oh, a it's a teams, bumper. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think you even have to do that anymore. It's like yeah, go look at the fucking web page. I think that's probably their answer. Yeah. Right, so the Cubs, uh, they make it look easy in the opener. They pound out 16 hits. They score 13 runs. Matthews had two. They had an 11-run lead. Uh, Dusty left Mark Pryor in and made him pitch the whole – no, that's a different series. So how – okay, here's a good question, though. With the 11-run lead, how many pitches did uh, Jim Fry make Rick Sutcliffe pitch? Ah, uh, that is a good question. Would they have that in baseball reference? They oh, might have it for a... Uh, wow, he pitched okay. seven innings. It doesn't look like they have pitches. He faced 28 batters. Yeah, I mean, he he, he wasn't struggling. He didn't give up any runs. No, he gave up. He did walk five. Ah. Uh, he made a yeah, run. Had, he, Ryan Dempster had to, had to best him for most walks in an opener. But Rick, uh, Rick walked five. But he also had an 11 run lead, so he could pitch around, guys. And uh, and a nice big home run himself onto the, onto, you know, the game was so ridiculous. You know, was Tom Verizer the starting? Oh, that was the last game of the other season. Sorry, I was like, wait a second. Um, but yeah, it sucked with not only Homer, but he hit one out on a Sheffield, which I think it's proven it's a little bit harder to reach the street in right field than left, or at least it was then. Um, and then. A couple things too is that they didn't have real umpires for these games, and right. that was one of the reasons why we didn't like Drysdale because they were almost like using that as an excuse. Felt like for the Padres, yeah. but the second game when Trout takes the hill, the the great thing about that was where Gurnier got on, and then Sandberg hit a bouncer to third, and I think he either beat the throw or he was out, but Gurnier went from first to third, yeah. and then beat the. And of course, the umpire is out of position. Still made the right call. Wait, are you saying uh, that Dave Cavanaugh, Dave Slickenmeyer, Joe Pomponi, yeah. and Joe Marr weren't yeah. real no. umpires? I remember the name? I remember the name Cavanaugh. Too. I like this. It was sixty-three degrees with a twenty-mile-an-hour wind in an unknown direction. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we don't know where the, we, we, it's windy, but we don't know where it's coming from. Does anybody know where the wind is coming from? No. The flags are all pointing different ways. Swirling the old crosswind. Yeah, the real ups came back for game five. I remember. They, yeah, just in time to fuck us, didn't they? Just in time to fuck us. Of course they did. That's when they made it back. Now game two was an actual competitive. It was. In fact, what I remember too is that Lee Smith got the save, but like uh, Henry Cottle got the last out. He was in for defense for Sarge. He got it right Kennedy. up against the wall. Basically, yeah. if you picture um, former Cub Angel Pagan trying futilely to catch Javi's home run oh, in Game One yeah. of the yeah, 2016 the NLDS, yeah. that ball that or the ball that Cottle caught was about two feet farther in. That was it. Otherwise yep. uh, the Cubs, Tie Lee game. blows the lead. Oh, it's ties it. Was there only one on or was there two on? Uh, I, thought, I thought it would have tied, tied it. it. Oh, yeah, it okay. tied yeah, it. Tied it. They might still be playing. Yeah, Lee always made it interesting. Yeah, he got Garvey I mean, they, ground out. He walked to Kevin McReynolds. No. They even had David had Davey Lopes for defense and right field. By the way, they acquired Davey Lopes in the trade deadline, and that actually meant uh, bad news for Jay Johnstone. That's why Jay Johnstone was not on the playoff roster. Right, so we know Jay has told the famous story that so Fry hated him, thought he was a smart ass. Go figure. 
And Jim Fry is just a humor was a humorless dick. He just right. really was. So he didn't like John Stone, and so he didn't want him on the playoff roster, and he convinced Dallas to leave him off the playoff roster, and he thought he was done with him. Like, we don't have to see him. And Dallas called Jay in, and he said, um, Jay, we don't have a spot for you on the playoff roster, um, but I'm going to make you the shower coach. And Jay's like, what's the shower coach? He's like, when the guys come in after the game, you point to the showers to let them know where they are. He said, you can be in uniform for the entire for the, for the entire oh. run because we're going to need somebody to point the guys to the showers. And so Jay shook his head right. and said thanks. And nice. got to, was there anyway and basically gave Fry the finger every day after that. Actually, so in yeah. the ninth inning with a, with a four to two lead, um, Jim Fry let Steve Trout pitch. Oh, he got okay, garbage yeah. ground out. He walked Kevin McReynolds and he took him out. Okay, um, it was a double switch. Davy Lopes. That's what put Lopes in. Davy Lopes came. Why, in. The, why the hell did you not get Moreland to play right field? Yeah, Lee came in, struck out Melo Carmelo Martinez, former Cub the year before, hit home run. Terry Kennedy flew out. Yep. Missed a home run by about a foot. And the yep. Cubs were up 2 nothing, and on their way to the World Series, and nothing That's right. stop us. And this in, is 15, in 15 years of divisional play, uh, while well, the Brewers had come back in eight, two years earlier down to love, and I think in that 81 sort of uh, ad hoc divisional series, I think the, one of the teams, Dodgers or whatever, came down. But it, it was very rare. So is this, is this the part where we, where we debunk the Cub urban legend? We've done it before, right? That the games were supposed to be opposite. No. The Cubs were supposed to have the three the home games. It was the National League West t- turn in '84. Right. What would have happened? I well, think even at that World point, Series it wouldn't was... have made it wouldn't have made any sense because the weekend games could easily have been day games. Correct, and they I mean, would last. ABC one didn't want the first two games during the week to be during the day. So they would have switched it the other way. It wouldn't have. They yeah. wouldn't have switched it the way that it was. Yeah, they always back then, even you know, because they didn't. Uh, nowadays, you have multiple platforms, so you put both games on prime time, I guess. But like back then, one network has the playoffs. They're gonna have to put a game on during the day, like when you know our grandparents would listen to games with the earbud in their ear. So uh, that was a no-brainer. I think they may. I think they would have switched it for the World Series because the National League did have home field in '84, and the American League uh, set was on the weekend. Because uh, I remember Alan Trammell's two homer game was a daytime World Series, one of the last that I remember seeing. See, I don't think they were. Going, uh, I think I think what happened. But was in '85, though, in, and the next year, yes. had they did, they would have had to play in St. Louis. In St. Louis, and that I think everybody has basically conflated those two things. Correct. They said that Bowie Coon robbed us of a home game. Somehow that just became a uh, total urban urban myth. Not true. Because back then, home field advantage was preset, and if you want to double check, now granted they went through a best of seven the next year, yeah. but the team that had home field the Come next year work. was the, well, I don't, because that was the Dodgers series with the Cardinals. I don't know. I, I'd have to, I know, you, you could easily pick it apart. I know that's not the case, so. And the other thing we talked about, Johnstone being left off. I mentioned Rich Bordy being left off the playoff roster. Uh, my dad was particularly upset that Rick Russell, who um, had left the Cubs, uh, you know, we got Doug Bird for him in 81 to, to help the Yankees in the World Series and then immediately blew out his elbow, worked his way back with the Cubs. And actually, he, got, he won a couple games in 84. He had like a five ERA, but uh, we were always upset that Dallas Green – not being very sentimental like we were, didn't give uh, Russell a roster spot. Instead, gave it to his old guy Warren Brewster. We were never huge Warren Brewster fans, but yeah. Well, the 
Russell thing would have been charity, but Bordy was literally one of their best relievers. It didn't make any sense that they left him off. Apparently it was, we well, don't have any playoff experience. How the fuck is he supposed to get playoff experience if he won't pitch him in a playoff game? Yeah. Or Brewster the only game, yeah, the, but Brewster didn't pitch in the playoffs. Except he did. That he pitched, he, yeah, he mopped up game one, which is fine. He didn't. But the only, game, the only game where the bullpen would have been a factor is game four. Both Tim Stoddard and Smith gave up runs. I don't like the bullpen was not why they lost. So it turned out, not, you know, not to be an issue. Basically, um, Eckersley didn't have it in Game Three, and Game Four was just a wild back and forth game, and Sutcliffe ran out of gas in Game Five. I mean, well, see, that's what makes me wonder. So I did a uh, a few years ago. I did a rewatch of Game Five. I had never I'd seen it as a kid, and had never watched it again. And I rewatched it. And I wrote a running diary of it. Because one of the things we talked about a lot as Cub fans was why didn't Sutcliffe, did Jim Fry try to save Sutcliffe to pitch game one of the World Series? In other words, we don't need him to pitch. Um, we're we're going to win. Well, this it would have been four. on sh- game four, which was about the Sanderson. It would have right. been Sutcliffe on short rest. Right. So the reason I, and I felt like I debunked it because, I mean, it was hot. It would have been a night game, which would have been a little better for Big Brick. But uh, the Sunday game yeah. was an afternoon game. And he visibly gets tired. Like, yeah. The Cubs have a 3 nothing lead, and he's out there with his big with his tummy and his big beard, which portly. neither of those things look like they'd be a lot of fun in the heat. And he starts to wear out, which made me wonder then why your ace needed to be pitching with an 11-run lead in game one. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Could there have been a few bullets but also, when you look back, I mean, it's a different time. 84 was a different time. I mean, the Correct. fact that he would nobody gave a shit fry for the fact that his starting pitchers were starting ninth innings in these big games and then having to be yep. relieved. Because that's how everybody did it. That was your starters were your best pitchers. Your relievers were mostly the guys Even who the weren't good enough to start. Lineup. And you weren't yep. going to put them in unless you absolutely had to. And, and, I, and I'm just going to say, Lee Smith was a little shaky in 84. I, I proved it. He gave up the homer to Garvey. I, he was so dominant the two years before. And he, he's pretty dominant after, too. But like, he was... Yeah, high wire act. It seems like a lot in '84. Maybe that's nitpicking, but um, probably. But yeah, probably. Hey, let me let, let me have it. Um, you know the so the 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 turning point moment. But that is another analogy. But what was the analogy? Well. Well, the prior analogy about the workload in the previous, because there are a lot of other analogies, right? Like you have like Sutcliffe who goes 14 games in a row, Wooden prior don't lose back to back both years. The Cubs yeah. have three cracks to win one game. You know, uh, there is a lot of airy peril. That is kind of another one, but that's a little bit revisionist, like you said, because the proper context is nobody would have ever considered pulling Sutcliffe that early. We were screaming, like, why the hell is Pryor still in this game in 2003? So. The, the tr- so the the turning point in this series was game four and it was uh, the Cubs complete inability to get Steve Garvey out it's not just the home run that you see over and over and over again which I know. swings late and he doesn't and it's, the whole thing it's like how the fuck did he even hit that thing out but if you go through the uh, go through the game log here whenever a batter drives in a run his name is bold Garvey's fucking name is bold every goddamn time in the third inning, yep. he doubles and scores, drives in Alan Wiggins. In the fifth inning, he singles and he drives in Tim Flannery. In the seventh inning, um, let's see, 
he singles and he drives in Chris Brown. And this is a back and forth game, and he keeps tying it. Every yep. time the Cubs get a lead, fucking Steve Garvey ties yep. it until um, tied at five in the ninth with one out. Tony Gwynn gets a single off Lee Smith, and then Garvey hits a homer, and the Padres win seven to five. And now we gotta, go, now we gotta. That's gonna fuck up our day because we're gonna watch Walter Payton set the all-time, uh, yep. Jim, break Jim Brown's record in the morning, and now we yep. got an afternoon baseball game when we were gonna just be celebrating the Cubs were going to the World Series on Saturday, and then watch Walter on Sunday. My brother, uh, well, first of all, my parents went out, which they hardly ever did back then. They went out to a party. And my dad was superstitious, so I'm sure he was nervous about doing it. My brother had people over. That's what you do. Parents are gone. People are going to be over here. And all I remember is my brother just standing up and saying, oh, and Garvey hits his home run. All this means is that Steve Trout's going to pitch the first game of the World Series. He's trying to believe it, right? <clears throat> Same guy that was at the, uh, the, the game in 2003. Uh, the Bartman game, and he called me. He's like, "Is that all you got?" I think deep down, even he knew it. Um, you also mentioned like Harry on the radio. He did do the playoff. Game. I've heard a compilation with Garvey's hits and Harry. There's a lot of that, and it's like Garvey does it again. And he was four for five with five RBIs right. in that game. He drove in every run. No, five of the seven. Seven. It was, it was seven, seven to five. five. Jesus. So another thing to make yeah. to, to just make it really irritating was in ninth in the, after the nineteen eighty two season, Garvey was a free agent. And he narrowed it down to two teams. The Dodgers didn't want him back. And he was either gonna sign with the Cubs or he was gonna sign with the Padres. I don't want him. I, don't I didn't want him, before. but if he'd have been a Cub, he wouldn't have been on the fucking Padres. Yeah, yeah. I here's what I would have done. I would have signed him and I would have benched him. I would have never played him. Just so he could have right. never played against him. No, right, I mean you know why he's but you know why he signed with the Padres. So here's this here's this all time winner, you know, the guy who broke Billy Williams all, you know, uh, record for consecutive, consecutive games. games. And now the Dodgers are like, fuck, we don't want you. And now he's got to pick between two dog ass teams, the eight, the, yep. the eighty two Cubs yep. and the Padres. Yeah. Because Padres everybody's looking nothing. around like Garvey's washed up. Nobody's gonna pay him any money. And you know why he stayed in San Diego? Because he had to stay close to his like eleven illegitimate kids yes, that nobody exactly. knew he had. But I guarantee you yeah. that's why he stayed on the West Coast. So sure. fuck that dude. Well, all right, yeah, I'll buy it. I never liked Gary, played for the Dodgers, right? Pretty boys. Uh, I always kinda like I because I like Bill Buckner, I always kind of felt like Bill Buckner that the Dodgers chose Buckner, so screw them. They don't know what they had. Um, you know, Garvey was the first baseman. Buckner had to play left field when he was in LA. Um, yeah, I just he uh, right-handed hitter. I don't know. It's uh, yeah, he never. You know, he just. Uh, I I'm speechless. No, I think the fact that he came that close to him with the Cubs was just proof that the Cubs had so little. The Dallas was basically looking at any because that because team construction wise the last thing that team needed you already right. had, you already had Buckner was at his prime and you were trying to find a spot for Durham to play every day the last thing you needed right. was to take that you know yeah dwarf and play well, with big four that's why I have a tough time buying that's why I have a tough time buying it unless like Bill Buckner because it is kind of like I said to start the show I and mean, Buckner was the every he was a he was a fixture um, right up until two months into the eighty four season and. Uh, just seemed weird because he played another five years. You know, guy probably had about twenty five hundred career hits. Yeah, that you know, Peyton sets the the record the next day, and then Brent Musburger uh, interviews him from the studio, and he actually asks him, you know, what's going to happen later on today. You know, 
Even Walter was asked where she said the Cubs are going to win. They're going to choke. Brett, <laughs> what do you think they're going to do? Get, you grew up in Chicago, game, Brett. You knew. You are a Cub fan. And that game five, you know, it was such a crusher game four. Very much like the Bartman game, right? Where it's like, oh, just like in, in game seven in 03 when fucking first Wood hits a homer or first it's a Lou and then Wood and the place goes nuts. In this game, Durham and Davis, who both homered yep. the night before, the damage was done. Slog, right? They had a 3 nothing lead. And like you said, you already kind of described it. Suckliff just kind of laboring in the sun. And, you know, San Diego kept kind of chipping know, further and further. And just to see it slip away to experience that, it was just a, what a brutal end to just an incredible, surprising season, you know? Yeah, so the Padres led 2 nothing after 3. The Cubs took got the lead right back. Three to two in the fourth. You're talking about the Saturday night game. Sorry. Yeah. Padres tied it in the bottom of the fifth. Well, my network crapped out, so I didn't hear part of what you said. Um, I was talking about the Sunday game when, you know, after a, a, a brutal loss, just like in 03 when yeah. Wooden, you know, they home, just, the Cubs jumped out the next day even after that. So, but yeah, the, the, the Saturday game was just a while back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. So the Padres are up 2 nothing after. After three, the Cubs take the lead in the fourth, up three to two. The Padres tie in the bottom of the fifth. The Padres then go up five to three in the seventh, and you think, oh, the Cubs are screwed. But then the Cubs yep. tie it in the eighth, and then the yep. Padres keep, win it. Keep Moreland with a single, Jody with a double. Yeah, they they, they took the lead on back to back homers uh, off of two in the fourth. Jody had a two run homer, then Durham, and then Jody. Jody had a big game that night. And then the top of the ninth with the tilt still tied. Um, the great Tom Verizer led off, but he popped out. Jernier doubled. Sandberg popped out to third. Matthews walked. Cotto got hit by a pitch, so Say's up with the bases loaded. Yep. And he grounded out to second. Coked out Alan Wiggins, no doubt. So it's all Ron Say's fault. Yeah. Yeah. Boo. You ruined our childhood, Ron. I, uh... Bob Costas was hosting NFL Live. He was, he was the op, you know, Brett Musburger did a, a C, the, the CBS show. I remember even Bob, young Bob Costas, at the end of like recapping the NFL games, expressed his condolences to the Cubs, and I was just like, "Fuck off!" Uh, bursting out with in tears. What a rough day. And you're right; it was like it should have been a joyous day. Sweetness set the NFL rushing mark. Very same day, but no. But thus ended thus endeth our innocence, Andy. In the future would be teenagers, baseball might become a little less important, blah blah blah. And we'd wait what, ninety oh thirty two more years. So if the Cubs had won on Saturday night, who would have been the NLCS MVP? Uh your, your candidates. Rick Sutcliffe for seven scoreless innings and a home run in game one. That's it, though, yeah. Uh, let's see. Jody Davis hit 389 in the series. This also obviously includes game five. Yep. Right. Sandberg hit 368. Yep. Um, Matthews. Matthews. Did he not do it? He hit 200. Although he did have a 429 on base and a 600 uh, OPS, or slugging. So he might have. Uh, Cub pitchers. That is a good question. Warren Brewster pitched in three games. Let's see, really. Didn't give up a run. Sense. He'd have been your NLCS MVP. Uh, well, Warren. one of the bitter pills. And as one a of kid, the bitter... I always thought his name was Roran Brewstar because of the way he spelled it with that stupid right. B R U S S T A R. Right. 
And then it'd be more made more confusing with a Richard Pryor John Candy vehicle the following summer, Brewster's Millions, which involved baseball and Richard Pryor wearing a Cubs jersey. Um, the one bitter pill about how it all went down too was like Eric Shaw. You mentioned him. Mentioned you know we mentioned him in the 1987 cast when he uh, hit Andre Dawson in the face. Which yep. by the way, I was at Woodfield for that. Uh, watching Spaceballs, so oh. maybe Rick Moranis is the reason yeah, I can't watch Cubs games. Um, but Eric Shaw was their ace, and he got lit up in that first game, and he was getting lit up in that in that game five. That's who Jody and Dirk. So Eric Shaw gave up homers to, uh, let's see, Rick Sutcliffe, Bob Dernier, and Gary Matthews in game one, and then Jody Davis and Leon Durham in game five. He got it. Dick Williams gave him a quick hook. And then we watched as a parade of uh, Padre relievers like Greg Booker and Greg Harris and a former Cub Craig Lefferts, who was a pretty effective rookie the year before, uh, completely shut the Cubs down once Eric Shaw got out of the game. Um, and watching Lefferts, who had a pretty interesting career. We brought him up before. He was involved in like a lot of weird trades, I think. Uh, but Lefferts and Carmelo Martinez were – were dealt in that three-way trade that landed us Scott Sanderson, who couldn't gut it out with a better performance in Game Four. So well, that was kind of Scott Sanderson's entire career. I know the ability I know. to gut it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that was the thing. Yeah, it was either Sanderson or Sutcliffe on short rest, and the, and the, and the Padres are dealing with the same thing. Does Dick Williams come back with Eric Shaw or go with Tim Lawler? Well, Eric Shaw sucks. Eric Sutcliffe's awesome. So how is that a Nevertheless. So I think we've settled on um, greatest free agent signing in Cub history being John Lester over Andre Dawson. Those are probably your two candidates. For right? sure. But I, it's got to be, there can't even be a close, right? The greatest trade acquisition of all yeah. time in Cubs history is Rick Sutcliffe, who all he did in 1984 for the Cubs was go 16-1. and one. That's a 941 winning percentage. Mm-hmm. Including, and then he also went way went one and one in the playoffs. Two sixty nine ERA. He allowed one hundred twenty three hits in one hundred and fifty innings. He struck out one hundred fifty five, and he only walked thirty nine guys. Um, yeah, his ERA incredible. plus for the Cubs that year was one forty four, which actually was only the was the uh, oh that's only in fourteen games. That's right. It was, it was, it was easily the highest. He had one forty one year. Right. Very few games. It, it, and if you watch the games, uh, like like on a lift, you watch when he pitched down the stretch. He always like when they needed a stopper performance, he did it. He was just, uh, I mean, we we had the analogy of '84 and '03 and blowing the three, you know, uh, a chance to win with three chances. Another interesting analogy, I, it was like the unprecedented performance between uh, amongst uh, Sutcliffe and Jake Arrieta, which I think Jake's might have been a little bit stronger statistically, but. Uh, both were the, the areas was different because it was really in 2015, but it also carried through the playoffs. And he also kind of ran out of gas that year. Um, but yeah, but not before punctuating it in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if the, I was talking about Sutcliffe being the best in season acquisition ever, like yes. the guy you trade for and that you, um, narrowly, right. I guess narrowly, I, I took it. narrowly edging Nick Castellanos on the 29th. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was the only Frederick guy. Griffin was the only guy who hit 
for the 2019 Cubs after the I know, and they still lost. So one of the reasons, you're like, why did the Indians trade Rick? Well, he was going to be a free agent. The Cubs had to the Cubs had to sign Rick after this big season. And they did. They signed him to a huge contract. Do you know? It was a five-year contract. Do you know how much total money the Cubs paid Rick Sutcliffe after he went 16-1 and and won the Cy Young? Not without looking. He signed a five-year, $9 million contract. Wow. Not $9 million a a year for five years. $9 million over five years. And you know what makes that even better? Is that that contract was probably seen as outrageous and part of the impetus. You're going to pay him $1.5 million a year? But, like, collusion started, like, a year after that. So it was, like, probably one of the last, like, oh, my God. Sutcliffe's got $9 million. This has got to stop. Yep. Because within two years, owners found their asses in court for colluding to control uh, to control those. Uh, so the, the other thing too that Sutcliffe, uh, yeah, it, there was there was a brief period of time when we thought he was going to leave and go home to Kansas City, where he was from. Uh, yeah, the Cubs had to court him and bring him back, and you know he was uh, an anchor. He was he was uh, you know he almost won another Cy Young in '87. He was an excellent pitcher. Was worth he was worth that contract, even though he got hurt in the, the next year. And went only eight and seven. Then another year, he was like four and twelve. But he also had some solid seasons. So, so if you want to know why Rick Sutcliffe uh, is still schlupping sh- it on Marquee, that's why because he made he cashed in off his one big season. And he made nine million dollars over five years. He made nineteen million dollars total um, in his big league career, which you know you can live on that. Um, well, we talked about it before we started that we were both going to be big Cub, Cub fans regardless. Um, our, it was our parents' fault, our dad's yeah. fault. We were stuck. 84 just made us crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that we're – the the level of our Cub fandom, I'm sure, was – 1984 is a huge part well, of it. Well, we went right back into the shitter then, right? Like 85 got off to the good start, and then, like, yeah, then 86 – it was – from that point, we set out on that course that we were pretty much on, with the exception of like a Lou Pinella blip, yep. and then the Theo era, where they're actually good for more than a few years. Like, it was we would spend the next twenty years after '84 in search of this, but never having any consistent pattern. They went from what 1972 until 2008 without having no till 2004 without having back-to-back winning seasons. Correct. 1993 was only their second, their third winning season in uh, 20 years. First without winning a division. I mean, very yeah. Basically, 93 and 95 were the only other two years that they were over 500 that they didn't win a division. 98 they got back to the playoffs. So yeah, up until the aughts, they'd only been five five hundred teams five times. Yeah. Five if you, times. If you became a Cub fan in 2003, yeah, they you had a winning record in 2003, 2004, 2007, yep, 2007, 2008, 8, 9, and maybe 10. And then you had maybe to wait. Not. No, not 10. No, okay. And but, then it was um, 15, they, 16, 17, 18, 19. No, 18. They were under 519. Amazing. No, they weren't. They won 84 mm-hmm. games. Oh, and they just missed the playoffs. Yep. And then they went back in 20. Okay, yeah. 20 that was and, the run. And so you've had to – you've had basically oh. – or, it's a handful of un sub five hundred. So you don't know what it's like to be a Cub fan. You really don't. That that Theo run that's fine. had I don't more. Wish that on you. That Theo run had more above five hundred, more consecutive above five hundred seasons. Fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, six. 
than we had had our entire lives until like 04, like aggregate. So 84, 89, 93, 95, 98. Our sixth 500 season was 2003. So, yeah, you're right. It's a whole different perspective. If you're that kid that was born like in 1999, um, the, yeah, the Bears would be like a laughing stock, and the Cubs are actually the gold standard. Yeah, you don't understand why, why everybody makes – because people, I'm sure people still make them, but people make right. cub jokes. What? No, they're the good team. You make fun right. of them. Like what you said about Pete, like like the Phillies trade to start the show. That absolutely. Now that you mention it, like there must have been like yeah, it's a safe place to park those guys. It wasn't going to come back to haunt them until it nope. did. Yeah. yeah. Everything changed, man. And, and so just to be there, it was fun to relive it. But it was, you know, interesting to just stop outside ourselves, you know. Uh, 38 years later, and just to like to actually be there when that happened, because you didn't really see it coming, and uh, and it wasn't the same after. But so the the '84 Cubs used 18 pitchers, which actually in this era of Cub baseball is a lot, because we've we, we hit years where they had used 12 for an entire yep. season. Remember, if they have 13 on, they'll have 13 on their roster on opening day this year, and they there was entire seasons where they only used 12 pitchers total. Um. Guys who you I, may not have remembered pitched for the 84 Cubs. Uh, Dickie Knowles. Yep, still hanging on. Porphy Altamirano. We talked about Porphy. Yep, Reggie Patterson of, pitched in three games. Uh, and then he got shot. He got shot after the season in South America playing winter ball. And I only remember that it happened like a week after Simeon star uh, Ben Wilson got shot and killed in Chicago. Oh. Reggie Patterson also shot. Uh, he survived it, though, and next in the next year would come back in time to serve up Pete Rose's uh, 4,000, was it, 191st hit that tied Ty Cobb. So that happened at Wrigley Field the next year. Uh, let's see. Bill Johnson and Don Schultz? Don Schulze. Oh, it's Schulze. Oh, yeah, there's Don no Schulze. There's no yeah, he's Schulze. a local guy, local yeah. part. He went to Lake Park High School, best known for uh, Ted Janulius, a.k.a. the San Diego Chicken, Fucking with Don Schulze in a minor league game, separating his shoulder. Oh, Don nice. Schulze sued the chicken. Good. And Schulze then would also most be best known as being part of that Rick Sutcliffe trade. He went the other way with Joe Carter and Mel Hall and Daryl Banks, no relation to Ernie, uh, in exchange for uh, Sutcliffe, George Frazier, who lost three games in the 81 World Series for the Yankees, and Ron Hassey. Ron Hassey. Oh, that's another thing I want to talk about. So, um, a lot of talk. Uh, I don't want to make this too contemporary because it's all dated, but uh, Cubs opening day roster in 2023 is likely to include three catchers for no good fucking Oh, did Bobby Cox come out of retirement? Um, so uh, Mike uh, Michael Cerami from Bleacher Nation had this tweet about how it's very common. The Cubs have, the Cubs have had a three-catcher team for uh, basically ever since 2016, and he listed all these seasons, and he was fucking wrong is what he was. In 2016, yes, they had three catchers. Once they brought yes. Wilson up, they used three. They all had an RBI in Game Seven. Uh, in 2017, they didn't have uh, they didn't have three. Ross was gone. It was just Miguel and Wilson until Montero got released when the Nationals ran all over him and Arietta. Yep. Uh, he didn't list 2018 because it wasn't. Um, 2019 was not a three catcher thing except Wilson got hurt right before the trade deadline, which necessitated the trade for the great Martin Maldonado. Who, who uh, didn't get a hit, and then they traded him again. And then he got hurt right. after. Wilson got hurt after the after the trade deadline. 2020, they, the rosters were all weird because of COVID. 
Um, and they did actually um, use three catchers because Ross, for some reason, felt the need to catch or to DH Victor Caratini. Oh, that's right. Twenty twenty one, they didn't have three catchers. They barely had two because remember they used all those backups. They had like eight backup catchers. I remember that. Yep. But anyway, so it made me wonder because I knew we were doing this. The um, the 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 uh, nineteen eighty four Cubs. They got Ron Hassey in the trade for Rick Sutcliffe, mm-hmm. and they already had Steve Lake and Jody Davis. So mm-hmm. did that make them a three catcher team? And you think I can't remember. Oh, probably did, except for the fact that they never let Ron Hassey catch. I mean, not never, but he caught. He played. For, he pulled. A, he pulled a hamstring playing first base. I yeah. remember for the '84 Cubs, Ron Ka- Ron Hassey caught six games. Yeah. So, yeah. No. He got it for his bat, I guess. Um, and that he, I remember it now. He pulled his hamstring while playing first base. He hardly ever played. For I kind of think maybe they got him with the idea that he would replace Lake. Yes. And then right. he couldn't. He, he got he hurt. Only barely he got hurt. Play, only played in uh, 19 games. Yeah, Ron Hassey, another one of those guys that he only existed in baseball cards if you were a National League fan because we didn't have interleague play. How many How positions I... did Keith Moreland start at for the 84 Cubs? Did he start a catcher in 84? He did. He got, wow. He got two games. He started. I can't believe he started, believe he two started games a catcher. Yes. Uh, I'm going to say. I assume uh, these were both before. Um, Mel Hall. Before he became the right fielder. Well, so I'm going to say right, left. First, third, and catcher. He did play left, but he didn't start. He played first, third. He played. He started five games at third, twenty-four games at first, and fifty in eighty-eight games in right field. Yeah. When the so the guy the we think get... of as the right fielder for the entire season barely yeah. played, barely started half the games in right field. Wow. He did make a diving catch in game one uh, of the of the playoff series. Yeah, the ball was hit three feet away from him. Wow. And he did legitimately have to dive, but it's only because he couldn't. He did, he did kick Ed Lynch's ass. Let, let us yes. not forget. No, he was the every. Zonk was a. Zonk. I refer to him with a terrible nickname. Yeah. That was his nickname. Um, He was a cool guy to have on your team. Like, he was. He was a, he was a hard ass. He, although he was, he was like this versatile player who wasn't as versatile as the Cubs tried to make him. Like, hey, we yeah. can play him at third. Like, he wasn't no, really good at any of them. He shouldn't. But you can. Yes. Like, he has a glove, and he can stand there, yeah. but he shouldn't play there. Uh, but basically, well, you could tell he was one of those guys where they said, go do this. He's like, I'll do it. And he would go do it. Dallas Green loved him, first of all. And, and even in 87, uh, when Dawson, when they signed Dawson, um, that was Moreland's last year, and he gamely did his best to play third base. He was our regular third baseman in 87. It was not like that. It was good. It wasn't that good. That, no. Is that what um, 88 – no, that was, that, there the was players. a little gap there before the great Vance Law, right? No. no yes, Vance Law right. probably came in 88 because he was he an all-star in 89. Was, mm-hmm. That's right. Two years for Vance and Law. Yeah, that Louis was the Yes. And then we go into it. Gary Scott. Yeah, you know. Steve Buschel. Uh, yeah, My Leo favorite, Gomez. Steve Buschel. Yeah. We should just do an episode Leo of Leo Gomez baseball. and Willie Green. I mean, those. I don't no, know how both Sh- of those guys hey, and the Cubs. How dare you forget Shane Andrews. If you're going to mention Willie Green, you got to bring some Shane Andrews. Koliniak, remember him? When the Cubs got him for Rod Beck. I Patrick do. Wisdom and Edwin Rios. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Oh, that's yeah. correct. Oh, Nick Mad- tiny little Nick Madrigal. Yeah. We, um, we do remember this crap 2023, and we have to talk about Nick Madrigal for 10 minutes. I'm just really. It'll just be, it'll just be an hour of 
name of third baseman. Uh, Tom Verizer was another uh, two-dimensional cops player. He existed only in my imagination as an American leaguer for Mickey Moore because so, he had those sunglasses that had those 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 obnoxious the, the sunglasses over the hat. Or, yeah. uh, we had a kid on our we had, we had a kid on our little league team who had to wear glasses, and we called him Tom Verizer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because of that card, he did not like it. That's a seventy-eight Tom Verizer tops, uh, and like boom, he's on our team. Now, Tom Reiser also, I believe, one of the deceased members of the 84 Cubs, the first of whom I want to say is the aforementioned Gary Woods, who uh, who dined out on Steve Carlton as a player. Uh, poor Gary passed about seven or eight years ago. Tom Reiser died a little more recently. <laughs> the Tom Reiser thing, when you told me about this, we, we looked him up on Baseball Reference. and it, yeah. Why Baseball Reference? I mean, I know Baseball Reference. They, they've they've got a lot of info why they need this info i don't know under tom verizer it said he was born february 11th 1953 in port jefferson new york he died july 8th 2014 at 61 years 147 days old at islip new york and buried he was cremated yes why is buried a thing literally this is where people go to look up i'd like to go see the grave of of somebody oh baseball reference has that like why i'm surprised they don't have where his ashes were scattered right that's a little too personal. Maybe, maybe, maybe you have know. to. That's on the subscription part, like where you can see the pitcher batter matchups. You can find that's out where right. Tom Verizer's ashes were scattered. Where where they were scattered? Somewhere over the sure, over Tiger Stadium used to course, be. And Islip, probably. Yeah, um, but yeah, I believe. And then Jay Johnstone, moment of silence, recently passed. Right, unfortunately, uh, and Bill Buckner is yeah. technically a member of the. So that's that's uh, the bring out your dead segment of. Uh, of uh, remember this crap. The four, I believe it's that's it. The four uh, eighty-four Cubs who are no longer with us. There could be more. I don't know, but I, I got my antenna to. I, I have a feeling like if uh, you know, Porfi Altamirano shuffles off this mortal coil, I'll I'll catch wind of it and I'll note it. Yeah, Johnstone looks like the oldest. He was seventy-four. Okay, yeah, decent run. Still a little young to die. Because um, Sanderson was sixty-two. Oh, Sanderson also, yeah. Oh, you didn't yeah. say Scott. I said Scott. Yeah, Scott Sanderson. No, I didn't. I forgot Sanderson died too. All within the last ten years, too. I want to say Gary Woods. I'm pretty sure is the first one to pass. This should it should be on Gary Woods's two, uh, headstone. Uh, his career mark against. Uh, it's probably even in his obituary. Because it wasn't even like. It wasn't even like a, a minuscule um, sample size. I mean, they weren't in the same division. I mean, Gary Woods was a quasi-regular player for a few years with uh, with Houston. Well, it's kind of the uh, – let's see. Gary Woods never – most of the bats he ever had in a season were 239 with the Blue Jays in 77. Yeah. And 270 okay. with the 82 Cubs. Actually, that was the most. 270 with the 82 Cubs. It's close as he came to being a regular. Played 117 games. Um. But it's kind of like uh, Bob Euchre famously had really good numbers against Sandy Koufax. Yep. Yep. I know you mentioned that. Um, Woods, here it is. He was batted 252 with the Cubs, batted 240 with Oakland, Toronto, Blue Jays, Astros, Cubs. Woods batted 348, 16 for 46 lifetime against Hall of Fame left handers. If you look up Steve Carlton's per, Woods, if you and you sort it by like. That like what like Woods will be towards the top, so just one of those one of those funny things. Steve Carlton, one of the greatest uh, pitchers of the twentieth century. 
could not get uh, middling Gary Woods out. And I got to see Gary Woods break up a no-hitter at Wrigley Field and uh, shove it up that one dumbass fan just because his dad (laughs) took took him to see Jim Maloney do that in the 60s. Uh, Let's see. Who else? Let's see. Uh, Billy Hatcher made his big league debut in 1984 in September. No. No Darren Jackson, though. Billy yeah, Hatcher we brought up Billy Hatcher. Hatcher. He had a unique um, career. Yeah, he had he had, a, uh, he had a big postseason series for Houston against the Mets, and then the World Series. What was he like, MVP? I think nineteen ninety for the Reds. I don't know if he was. He should have been. This uh, is, he wasn't MVP. But he had like ten hits or something. MVP yeah, so his career MVP. playoff slide. And see, maybe Cubs should have activated him in eighty four. No. Yeah, Little did they know his career playoff slash line. He batted 404 with a 466 on base and a 654 slug in the 20 in the night or in the 1990 World Series against the uh, the mighty Oakland A's. Yeah, <laughs> he was nine for 12. Wow, with scored six runs. He had four doubles and a triple. He slugged. He was. He is batted 750 with an 800 OBP and a 1250 slug. He, he his he, OPS for the World Series and his all times that someone ever played in is 2.050. Damn. He was. Uh, he was like Steve Garvey in that series. It was. He was like that one game from Garvey, except. Yes, they right. It was just that one game. Was, yeah, right. Somewhere out there, there's just Harry going. Garvey does it again. Ah. I would. Uh, the Cubs. I, would the Cubs I don't remember. I should know this. Who did the Cubs uh, trade him for? Oh yeah, that's who. Right. That's great. Billy Hatcher. Oh, let me guess. Let me guess. Uh, Billy Hatcher would have been traded for. Was it Jerry Mumphrey? It was Jerry Mumphrey. Yeah, we discovered that. Uh, Billy Hatcher and Steve Engel. I remember Steve, Steve Engel was one of the many bad arms that came up in '85 when the uh, the pitchers all went on the DL, along with Jay Baller. Derek Botello. Good bit of self scouting uh, by the Cubs uh, to know what they had in their system because uh, let's see, Billy in uh, in 1987, so the first full year after the trade, hit 296 with a 352 on base and a 415 slug uh, for the Astros. Well, sure the Cubs 87 Cubs had with... all kinds of talent. So well, it was him. like an old Dernier and Mumphrey, I guess. That's how they, yeah. Um. Ah, that's another thing to, to mark if we ever uh, break down the, 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 the long, sad, woeful history of center field for the Cubs. Billy Hatch was another one. Yeah, we have to put the that, what ifs on there, too, not just the. Right. Well, if there's something we forgot to mention about 84, then uh, oh, I'm sure tough the, shit. Well, I'm sure the people will tell us. Well, maybe. But, yeah, so. The. Uh, it was the great young, the great Cub team of our youth, and it was the perfect, probably the perfect experience for a Cubs fan, and that they, we saw the highest of highs, and then three right, every, and then get reminded of how li- how life is. Like this can't happen to us. This year has been too good. Nobody loses three in a row, right? So yeah, nice life, life lessons, but still, uh, still a privilege to have gone through it because it was just uh, not anything we expected. We were going to be fans. Uh, uh, come hell or high water, so it was we were going to be there regardless, but to see it unfold was just kind of an incredible thing. So, so I believe it was, if I do this right, um, 
from 1980. The Cubs made the playoffs in 84, 89, 98. 03, 07, 08. 07, and 08. And then, so that's one, two, three, four, five. So six, six times in a row that they made the playoffs, they lost three games in a row in every oh. single appearance. Holy shit, you are right. They got swept in 98. They lost three in a row in, in San Fran. They got they lost three in a row in 03 um, in every single season because they did not get swept three by the Braves in 03. And then right, yep, it's up to, 07. It, oh, that's right. In 03. No, the three, they but lost three season, games in they, a row. They finished yes, that season by losing so, three in yes. a row to the Marlins. Basically, their their playoff. Se- oh, that's how their season ended. Their playoff season right. ended with three oh game losing God. streak every oh single time. Every single six time. times in a row. And, and then even the first Theo team, it did also. There was four in a row there, bud. And that was it. Yeah, that's right. Right. It went until. Because even in 2017, well, in 2017, 2017 they lost the first three. Yeah, they didn't. Then right. one. They salvaged then, one. That that broke their streak. It was Arietta's list, yeah. And then uh, 18, it was a one and done. And then 20, they lost two. Okay. Lost two. Interesting. Never never considered it that They way. are on a, well, I guess they're on a four-game playoff losing streak, right? Well, that's not as bad as the one that they were on beginning with uh, game four in Florida, where, was that Nine. They lost the last three in 03, and then they got swept in 07, 08. Yeah, nine, nine in a row. And then, actually, so they lost 10 in a row because they lost game one of the Cardinals series. And, no, they broke oh, it with the wild, card, the wild card win. That's right. That counts. That's a playoff game. Not a regular yep. season game. It's a playoff game. Uh, the glorious postseason <laughs> history of the Cubs. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's funny how one we'll World Series win washes away a lot of that. And, and it's probably then – it poetic that they won that World Series by having to win three in a row to win it because they were True. backs against the wall. That's this it. was a team that That's... whenever they had faced an elimination game, I guess I think that was the stat, right? Yes. How many elimination games in a row they lost? Elimination where if they won, they move on? Where they had to win or go home, they just lost. Oh, right. So, but no, uh, it would be had... elimination game for like so, like for either. I guess if you call yes. it, like they could have eliminated the Padres in two of those three times. In all three of those games, they three lost times. them all. Yep, they, they were not in that position against the Giants. No, they were not in that position again until the Mar- the, the Braves, Mar- and they and they failed to do it the first time against the Braves. That's so, that's what it was. I remember I, I tallied the whole thing up, and so it would have been like one and seven with a chance to close series. out the other team. They, they were one and seven one game. Yeah, uh, through through the Marlins, and then it didn't, and then until the Pittsburgh series. Pittsburgh. But then the, yeah, but then the other one is when they are, yeah, like if they when they face elimination, elimination, they pretty much go home. Right, because it only happened until... once in '84, once in '89, once in '98, uh, and then every other, yeah, every time they never once extended it until. Uh, until the World, the World Series, Series, right? Yep. Which they were never on that, the three. Which, that must be really comforting to Cleveland fans. Yeah, this franchise that when pushed against right. the wall always fell through the wall. Right. Until not, not just, you got them three times to win a World Series yeah, and they not, fought not, back Not all just three extended times. it by one game, but like extended it and actually won. Because they actually did do it subsequent to that. Because the Dodgers jumped out to a 3 nothing lead and then Arietta had his final performance at Wrigley and, and staved it off for a day. Yeah. In 20, so right, that that actually was that's a huge outlier in Cub history. 
Correct. Is the being down three to nothing with a chance to get swept and, and don't he, get swept to the kind of yes. the bare minimum of Jesus. Like, can we at least salvage one game out of this? So that's only happened twice. Only twice in only been two series in our lives. Mm. I'm sorry, three because the Braves when they swept, they could have lost. They could have gotten knocked out. Right, because that was an elimination game for both teams. Game five. Yeah. All right. So three times. I'm glad we rehashed that. Yeah, I'm sure the fans. See, I just don't know. People who made it to the end what. of this two hour and forty eight minute podcast are like, like well, you guys now what are they up? talking about? Can we just shirt this off now? I think we're done. Thirty two right. years in the books. So uh, if if you missed anything, go back and listen to it. Otherwise, I don't think we have anything else to say. Well, Mike, this was your idea, so I want to thank you. It turned out to be a good idea. As as <laughs> thank you. As laborious as some of those seasons were, we always oh, found man. a reason to rehash every one of the seasons. The toughest one was, I think, the Mike Quaddy year. That was the, the end because my own memory fritters away. After after uh, I said it before. After 08, the treble horn year, not not a lot of good there. No, but like we were so young and into it, we're gonna remember all the bad. I think after the Pinella, after the 0708, my brain broke, so it's hard for me to to maintain a memory of nine, ten, and eleven. So those are hard ones for me. Actually, I found like 94, 97, 80 when the shitty season is pretty easy because the trauma is there and it doesn't take. I don't have to struggle to recall it. So yeah, the quality years were tough. Those are the ones I didn't really enjoy, but all the others. I hope the listeners found it uh, as enjoyable as I did. Um, is as starring as it was to get there. Yeah. So is, thank uh, you for people who are worried. This is not the end of remember this crap. We have uh, it will simply take a different form. We had still lots of crap to remember. We do. And one last thing before we go, because I just saw this, I want to. We I have besmirched Jim Fry for years because I. Um, but how about this? Those- the Pythagorean win loss for the nineteen eighty four Cubs was ninety one and seventy, and Jim Fry outperformed it by five wow. games. Take that, Hater. Yeah. Whoops. Well, and I do think you do take a lot of shots at Jim Fry and a little bit for manager, but I really we saved most of our venom for Fry. Well, yeah, I think it's his, all colored by because really when you tenure. when you look back when I when I rewatched Game Five, I don't know what else he could have done. Yeah. And you know he was. It was exciting. So my like, anger, I think, really was from he really did fuck the franchise up as the general manager because he just had manager. to get rid of all that's of Dallas. My, that's any prospect that Dallas had, he was just going to get rid yeah. of. And no, he that he, he poured up. salt on the ground and, and he burned it all. I, you know, when they got him, it was exciting because he was like a celebrity manager. He, you know, we didn't have managers that took teams to World Series and yeah. stuff. And he was Dallas Green's second hire after Lee Elias, so he had some cash shit and it paid off. So yeah, I didn't find much fault with him. As a manager, in retrospect, I, I do a little bit, but yeah, uh, the venom that I have for Jim Fry is entirely due to his mismanagement at the front office when he came back, and that wasn't his fault. How they hire him for? Right, he was an idiot. Why would you? If you hire an idiot, he's going to do dumb shit. Simple as that. Um, so I just had to look because in the video he talks about how he's been part of a World Series champion and managed in a World Series. And I was trying to figure out Baltimore who was Orioles. He was, a, he was an he old was, Orioles. He was a coach. Guy. He was a coach with the Orioles. Yeah, he was Earl Weaver. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Andy. Catch you later. Many of us have herpes. I just wanted this to be over.